Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. Hey everybody, this is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast. If you like the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast, we have a show for you. We sit down with local outdoorsmen of Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma to talk all things hunting, fishing, conservation, history, and culture in the Ozark Mountains region. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts to discuss the pursuits of hunting turkeys, bears, and whitetail, as well as the science behind their conservation. Join me and my co-host Kyle Plunkett every Wednesday and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. What's up, everybody? Happy Monday. I would say it's another Monday closer to deer season, but I've been deer hunting for like a week already, so I can't say that anymore. Um, Jacob told me to slow down the intro, so that's what I'm doing here. Um, but today, we have a, another public land killer for you, Mr. Uh, Greg Staggs. How are you doing, Greg? Hey, I'm doing awesome, guys. How are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. You got a few chigger bites, but I'm living. Uh, Jacob, <laughs> Ginger, how are you? Good. At least y'all been hunting. I haven't even been out since Georgia. Just been tied up with work and everything else. And I was going to go hunt Tennessee this weekend. But I think we're going to go hunt some hogs here on some public land in uh, Alabama and then do the Tennessee trip for next weekend when this major cold front's supposed to push through. So I'm excited. Right on, man. Right on. Well, uh, let's let's jump right into it here. Uh, Greg, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background in hunting and everything? Yeah, so uh, so like a lot of us guys that uh, hunt pretty hard and, and hardcore now, I grew up you know, hunting – you know, from the time I, I could remember, uh, shot a lot of, you know, thousands of birds with a BB gun and 
transitioned into rabbit hunting. I grew up in the, the Missouri boot hill. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the geography, I know we've got listeners from all over the nation. If you, if you look at Missouri, there's a little part on the bottom right that kind of protrudes down into Arkansas. And for some reason, people think that looks like the heel of a boot. And that's called a boot hill. And um, it's really flat down there. They grow cotton, soybeans, watermelons was pretty much all that was down there. There was no deer. Uh, there was no woods around. It was pr- pretty much reclaimed swamp. It was a lot of a lot of sand and and railroad tracks, and so we grew up with a with a pack of beagles, and and I hunted behind a pack of beagles the whole time going through high school, and and uh, I was the first generation, first person in my family to ever go to college, and I, I chose to go to school at Arkansas State for my undergraduate degree, and uh, was pretty poor, like I said, first person to ever go to, to to school to take a college class, and I was working my way through school pretty much full time, taking out some student loans. Uh, pretty much struggling to uh, to make ends meet and I was fishing I was trying to kick up a rabbit on the on the weekends with a with a shotgun out of fence rows to supplement the grocery bill and literally was trying to scrape by and and one night I I just grabbed the uh the conservation handbook from from Arkansas and was thumbing through it trying to figure out what I could go kill next to put food on the table and, and I'm not kidding that's kind of where I came from and I'm, I'm thumbing through there and I come across white-tailed deer and I'm like, you know, we did not, we didn't have deer. I'd never seen a deer before in the wild ever. And, and I'm talking, I was, you know, 19, 20 years old at this time. And, uh, you know, seeing, I mean, I'd killed hundreds, if, if not thousands of rabbits, we, we caught a lot of fish. I mean, I, I was a great out, you know, grew up with a dad who, who loved to take me hunting and fishing, but we just didn't have deer. And, and when I, uh, when I came across that white-tailed deer, I'm like, man, one of those would feed me for a while. And I got excited about it. And I, I started looking at the season dates and, and, uh, the gun season was, you know, a week long or something. And I thumbed back over to archery and it was like four or five months long. And I'm like, surely I can kill a deer in four months. And I went to Walmart that night at 11 o'clock at night We had a, I guess, Walmart super centers were already around. And I found a used bear bow hanging in the archery section in the sporting goods of Walmart. And which, I mean, finding a used bow in Walmart, I mean, someone had returned it. I don't even think they carried the brand. You know how people return things to Walmart. And I, I contacted this, the manager. I asked for the manager to come out, the sporting goods manager. I talked to him down on the bow even more because it had some rust on it. It was that used. He sold it to me. And I started started trying to figure out how to, how to bow hunt. And... And the only place, obviously, growing up poor, I didn't have rich friends. I didn't have people who had farms. I didn't, I mean, I had, I, by no choice of my own, I had to start public land hunting. And that is literally how I got into it back in 1993. Very cool, man. I didn't know your story. That's pretty, that's pretty fascinating. Uh, did you get your deer in that four months? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, uh, it it took years. Thankfully, I, uh, I, I still you know, fished and, and, you know, I kicked up for some rabbits and shot some squirrels out of some trees and, and, uh, I made do and, and ended up graduating and everything, but no, I didn't kill a, kill my first deer until, uh, gosh, I was, I, I was out of school a couple of years ago. I went and got my master's at, at Southeast Missouri state in Cape Girardeau. That's what brought me to the area I reside at now. And, uh, literally is, it was, it was a year after graduate school. So I, I struggled pretty hard. I, I read voraciously. I read, you know, a lot of things um, that that I could get my hands on, and and I don't know if that really pushed me over the edge at all. But but I I soaked it up, and fortunately, I kind of jumped on the wave of when when the internet was really starting to take off. And this is really really going to date me, but 
I mean, I was getting on the internet when, you know, we were dialing in and you would hear the clicks and whistles and all the stuff that, you know, we, we joke about nowadays. And it would take literally like five or six minutes to even connect to get online. And uh, it was super slow. But, yeah, that's how I, I started really learning a lot from the bow hunting forums, some of the initial forums that you would you would log on to. And they're kind of old hat now. But those those things is where I really cut my teeth and and started picking up some knowledge and and even back in the day, years and years ago, I mean, Dan Infault and I were on the same forum. And I won't say that's how he got his start, but I was with with Dan when you know, I was reading all his posts. He was reading mine. And there was a whole bunch of us on there. And then he branched off and did his own thing. He was very, very you know, on the other three forums on the on the Internet before it all kind of exploded. So early on, okay. when, when you first started like hunting out there and everything and, and you were trying to learn how to deer hunt basically on public land on your own, uh, what were some initial things you started doing that kind of helped you gain success? Yeah, you know, some of the some of the initial things is I, I've just kind of been a guy that will, I, I believe effort is 99% of the battle. And a lot of guys, they want to sit around and, and, you know, go on certain days or, or the best days or if a weather front, cold weather front's coming in or whatever. And I figured out initially that you know it's a long season but there's only so many good days a year but if i just you know hit it hard and you know deer are out there whether they're as active on, on some other times as not but but they're still feeding they've got to they've got to go drink they've got to go eat and so i i quickly learned that if i just put in more effort than the the average guy and and sometimes the effort was an intensive effort as in going three or four miles back or or you know kayaking in or some of the things that are more popular nowadays but just from an intensive effort of just the you know the barrage of hitting it time and time again and i learned very quickly as far as something i changed is don't burn out trees don't go go a lot but go to a lot of different spots i I bounced around a lot after i started finally learning that the first sit-in is was the best sit-in yeah now that brings up a whole mess of questions um so so you kind of fall under the, the mindset of just like hunt when you can, you know, don't necessarily wait around for like a weather front and everything like hunting in what people would consider adverse conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a lot of people are amazed to know that for well over a decade now, I'm very fortunate with the career choices that I've, I've been able to make over the years. But um, a lot of people are, are very amazed to know that I've averaged over 100 sits a year for the last decade. And now that's not a hundred days. I kind of sit as, you know, I, I may hunt four or five mornings, you know, in a, in a row. And then I may hunt five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 evenings. And that might add up to 14 or 15 different sets or whatever. So uh, I don't hunt a hundred days a year, but, but if I keep track and, and I do usually, I average well over a hundred sits a, a year. So um, yeah, I hit it, I hit it pretty hard and I figure the, you know, the odds are got to be in my favor at some point that I'm going to, I'm going to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, that's something I'm trying to do this year is count my number of sits. And I had number, uh, I guess, number eight today, my eighth sit yep. of the year. So I'm right on right. track to start doing a whole bunch <laughs> this early in the season. Um, so uh, let's let's kind of dissect that a little bit about, about hunting just when you can. Um, to keep it seasonal, I guess, talking about early season like right now, where it's just hot as all get out. I'll just kind of ask you a generic question. Like, what are you doing in early season to kind of, to get on some deer? 
Yeah, so uh, so I'll, I'll take a hunt that I did last week, for example. So I, I needed to be in the middle of the state. And um, I know full well that there's a uh, there's an 8,000 acre bow hunting only uh, public land area right smack dab in the middle of the state. It's got a big nuclear reactor facility right on the middle of it. So obviously they don't want a lot of you know lead slinging around and, and gunfire. So uh, it's 8,000 acres of bow hunting only. And I had to be there um, on a on a Thursday. So I headed over Tuesday night and dedicated Wednesday to, to hunt. And I'm not a, uh, I, I kind of ascribe to Don Higgins's philosophy of, if our listeners know who he is, I, I really respect the heck out of that man and uh, have had a chance to spend a lot of time with him. And so, um, you know, he's not a huge morning, early evening morning hunter. And I'm not either, to tell you the truth. I, I think that a lot of the deer are back in the beds, you know, right at, at daybreak, if not a little earlier. And so, you know, I'm talking about when it's hot, hot, like it was 97 degrees with a heat index of 103 last week here in Missouri. Mm. So uh, that was really hot. So I, 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 I opted just to go for, for an evening hunt. And I, I, I went out there and, and uh, I, I was looking on my aerial maps on my phone and I, I looked in about a quarter of a mile deep maybe half a mile or so. And I noticed a little pond and, and I just, I made a beeline for it. I mean, I figure if it's that hot, uh, you know, if I'm wearing a fur coat and it's 103 degrees and, and my first thought is I, I need to get some, I need to hydrate. I need to get some water. And so I looked around that, I, I found the little pond and, and looked around it, found a few tracks. I found a couple trails heading off and I actually found, found an area I liked and unfortunately, right after I found the area I liked, I looked over and there, were, there was a, a stand hanging in a tree. And so I that's actually where I probably would have set up. It's funny how, you know, sometimes you go into public land spots and, you you know, someone else has found a spot. And it's funny how people have never met can can decide that that's a good looking spot. And I run into that a lot. So what I did was I just pushed on deeper. Uh, I, tr- I took an educated guess on where I thought the, the bedding area might be, and I went another 150 yards beyond that until I found a, found a kind of a travel corridor area. It was a little bench area and kind of went around a little spur that would have made it easy for, uh, for deer to navigate around, and I set up on that. And at very, very, very last light, I had a, a really big-bodied animal come, come by but it was, and, and I saw antlers, but it was such, such a late movement that I could not positively identify it as a, something that I wanted to put on my wall. And so I, I didn't even pick my bow up. So, um, you know, I'm at that point in my career is if, you know, I, I don't, I don't shoot things I'm not going to mount. So, um, I have not always been that way. I've, you'll go back and look at, look through my history of pictures. I've shot some very small bucks, but um, you know, nowadays I'm, I'm kind of at a different level of where I started out, obviously. Yeah. I had the same thing happen to me, uh, last week I had a, a buck come by me. I mean, just right at last light. I mean, he was like 15 yards, but, uh, the place I was hunting, he had to have four on one side and I just could not tell, uh, yep. so I had to let him go. That's uh, yep. that's, that's the way it goes sometimes. But I, I like how you, you kind of what I hear when you say that is like you're kind of thinking of the heat and thinking about how to use it to your advantage. So kind of identifying yep. that one little water source, um, which wh- what are your thoughts on that, by the way? Um, throughout most of the South, you know, a lot of people that listen to this in the South, in this region, I mean, we're, we have no shortage of water. There's a lot of creeks over pretty much every hill. But uh, how do you think the deer use those creeks? Like, do you think they're getting water out of creeks? Do you think that... 
that they really prioritize like bedding near like a big creek or, or something like that? Or do you think they're a, a little bit indifferent to it being that there's so much water around? Yeah. So, you know, obviously I'm going to be making a little bit of an, of an educated guess as far as the, the deep south because I, I don't live there and I don't hunt there. But mm-hmm. it would it would be my opinion that if water was everywhere and it was readily available, I mean, it's almost so I go out west elk hunting and I use the same tactics that I, that I, I apply to whitetails. I try to apply them out there as well. And, you know, if it's dry, we're hunting wallows and we're hunting, we're hunting water. If it's rain for two or three days in a row, and, and it would be applicable to, you know, antelope hunting out west in Montana or, or Wyoming as well. If it's rain for two or three days, you know, there's no sense in zeroing in on water because it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would kind of think more that deer would be using the, the creek banks and, and the, the riverways more for a cooling effect if it was that hot, more so than they just needed water per se. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that we're kind of wondering about as we've been hunting Georgia these last, I guess it's been almost two weeks now. Um, we're just wondering how they're how they're using this water for cooling effects or, or whatever else, kind of just trying to build right. up familiarity with it. Because I've never, besides a few sits last year, I've never really hunted in September because Bama doesn't open up until mid-October. Um, but kind of yeah. moving on from that, so um, when... When you're going into places, are you, do you like, do you have like a, let's say there's a parcel near your house that you hunt. Do you have like hundreds of pins of places that you might go hunt, just kind of pre-map scouted, and then you might go hit it depending on like weather conditions? Or are you kind of, when you're getting ready to go, you're pulling out your phone and doing a quick scout and heading out? You know, so I am, I am really relatively new to the whole, you know, Onyx, slash hunt stand slash base map what whatever your app of choice is I, i'm really new to that game to be honest with you um i i was really kind of cut my teeth and have always been brought up to be a, a boots on the ground you know dirty up your leather kind of a guy and so i would I, I, for years and years and years I've, I've went out and tried to find the remote the most remote parking spot i can or the most difficult at you know access spot or sometimes the most overlooked i mean i've got a i've got 143 inch straight six very clean six he's 143 inch and if you do the math on that that's a that's a boone and crockett frame that only grew six six times and so uh he's one of my animals that i'm most proud of to be honest with you and i killed him probably about 110 yards from a parking lot but it was a really overlooked area in a very small tiny tiny wood lot and so, you know, I'm looking for anything like that. You know, you, you hear stories about that, about overlooked areas. And so I'm looking for stuff like that. But but to get back to the point of your question is a lot. Of, I would go in and and I, you know, I always had my my standing sticks or, you know, for the last 15 years until I transitioned into saddle hunting recently, I, I walked in with a lone wolf alpha alpha hand climber and I had that on my back and just the bare, bare necessities of what it took to accomplish a hunt. I'm talking about maybe a grunt tube, a rangefinder, a release, and a pull-up rope, and that's pretty much about all I walk into the woods with. And and I just walk until I find hot sign and set up on it right then. Okay. Um, so I wanted I want to dig into the whole overlooked thing a little bit more here lately, or here in a little bit, but one mm-hmm. thing I really want to ask about is like difficult access. So for you, what defines difficult access for you? So in the old days, it used to be a long way from a road. Um, even though, 
so the the public land might be accessible, but the spot I wanted to hunt was difficult to get to. So if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that, that kind of centered a lot of my hunting around that. Then later on, it was finding a spot. And I've done this a couple times with, with good success, finding a huge chunk of of woods that uh, of public land, and then seeing if I could get access to it from private on the back side of it. So I was hunting public, but I'd accessed it by asking a farmer or someone that, hey, can, do you mind if I just cut through? I'm not going to hunt on your land, but would it be okay if I just cut through to get to this chunk of land and, and then call it out? Uh, and then later on years, for, you know, the last, I don't know, I guess I bought my first canoe about nine years ago or so. And water access became a mainstay for me is because I realized that water separated, you know, me from probably 90% of the people. Okay. Jacob, you got anything on that? I know you like access. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a there's a lot of things I, I want to run on, but you know, just while we're on the topic of access, you know, I, I think you know a lot of things that you said is very relatable to from what we've heard from other guys, but also some stuff that we've done as well. You know, talking about accessing public land through private with permission on the back side to me is one of the like in my opinion, is one of the most successful ways to get to a deep corner of public than trying to walk, you know, two miles through the public to try to get back there just because you're coming from a different angle that probably nobody else is really doing. Um, yep. And you're probably hunting deer from an angle that they're not used to having pressure back there. Um, yep. And I actually did that last year in Tennessee – or not Tennessee. It was – well, yeah, in Tennessee and Alabama. Uh, I was able to talk to a few landowners that would – you know, grant me permission to park on their property. And really what I was doing, I would find places where they're not, there's no parking. Like it's just a road and there's a, um, there's a, uh, like a, how would you call it? Like a guardrail on the public side and you cannot, there's no way to get off the road. So I went across the road and found, you know, a, a old lady that uh, would let me park in her yard and walk right across. And it was, it yep. was amazing. Yeah. Um, so that, that's awesome. So that's really cool to hear you do that. And then also, you know, water access, you know, um, you know, Cody Smith, which is a gentleman we had on, uh, this past week. Um, that's what he does a lot down in the Delta. Now, I mean, you know, he's hunting, you know, majority swamps. So, I mean, he's taking a P-Row in or he's taking a, a kayak in pretty much on every hunt. Um, but that, that's, that's pretty slick as well, just because, you know, a lot of guys talk about water access, but I feel like a lot of guys talk about it, but not a lot of guys actually talk it and do it Uh, because i've talked about it a lot i haven't done it yet (laughs) right so yeah uh, no i actually uh for for years and years i actually just sold it this this last fall actually this spring rather actually this year um i had a jeep cherokee sport and i had a bumper hitch attachment or it actually went in the receiver hitch rather uh that you would pull a trailer with and it was a pivot arm it came out and teed up and you could lift to the front of your canoe up and and throw a little uh, you know bungee cord over it and then lift it up and the whole thing you'd have to walk the canoe completely out you know 180 degrees from your from your jeep but you could it would pivot the whole whole canoe around and then you could drop it on your luggage rack and bungee the front of it down at that point and uh, so it made it really nice but Cabela's carried that if anyone's interested in that but yeah there, there's things out there that can make it and the reason I hunted out of a canoe is because it, it would I could haul deer back in it nowadays i'm doing more out of a kayak but i'm more interested in if you know if i decide to shoot something i'll quarter it up and unless it's a big one then i'm you know taking pictures of it and everything yeah well i want to talk about more of your kind of jumping back almost to the beginning when you're talking about your transition to deer hunting on public land 
what was that transition like to you and what really allowed you to start having more success? Uh, you know, not only finding deer, but then get to the point where you're like, okay, I'm going to target larger bucks and actually right. be, get on them consistently. Cause I mean, dude, you've killed some absolutely giants in my opinion. Well, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So, you know, some of it is not, not so much more different, different than you see these trends and movements today is it, I've went from some bulky, clanky, heavy, uh, heavy setups that, you know, I, I was lugging 28 pound stands and, you know, steel framed, you know, the old V bar things that you, if you slipped, you'd slide halfway down the tree that I ordered from, uh, you know, <laughs> off a of, on, on a, a magazine or a catalog that came to my house to, you know, and then I went to a steel summit, then an aluminum summit, and then, a, then, you know, the, the aluminum lone wolf. And, and nowadays I hunt out of a two pound saddle. So, you know, I've made that tr transition over the years to get lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter. And, and that, honestly, that helped a whole lot. It helped with my mobility. It helped with my, you know, confidence that I could go deeper, farther. Um, so just trying to hunt other places that people don't get to, that, that helped tremendously. And, you know, I, I'm going to say something that, you know, probably as far as being able to, to put larger bucks on the wall um, and, and shoot large bucks, a lot of that has to come with, I, I shoot a lot of does. Um, you know, if, if anyone's ever got on my Facebook page or, or looked around or, or read any of my stories, I actually, you know, put this in one of my first stories I wrote for wild edge over the, in the spring is, you know, I'm pretty proud of the fact that my wife and I have have not had to go to a grocery store in 25 years. Uh, we I've been able to provide enough red meat in the form of venison that we haven't bought any kind of beef product from a store. Now we'll go out and enjoy a steak at, you know, at Chris's Ruth Chris steakhouse or, you know, roadhouse, Texas roadhouse or whatever. We'll buy a steak when we're out. But, uh, but we have not bought, you know, meat from a store in 25 years. And, and the reason why is because I shoot a lot of does and, and I pack our freezer with it. And that kind of takes the edge off wanting to kill something. The first thing that comes in. And I'm more prone and more likely to let the smaller bucks walk if I know I've got venison in the freezer. If I if I don't have that bloodthirsty, I've got to kill, I've got to kill because I've already killed four does this year. And that takes the edge off me. And, and that allows, I know that's, it. maybe people won't make that correlation, but for me, it, it definitely helps me just watch the little, the smaller bucks walk. And until I can actually have a shot at something that I want to put on the wall. Got you. Now, what was your transition like? You know, so, you know, you're being very selective on you know, trying to shoot a bunch of does and now, you know, trying to focus on, on a quality buck. But what are some of these areas that you have learned through the past, just, you know, your experiences hunting public land that you've seen and found and killed some of these big deer? Like, if, I would love for you to, just, you know, kind of run us through a hunt, maybe something that's a, kind of a memorable hunt, maybe that, even that six point on like how that, how did you pick that spot? How did you go in there and what that hunt play out like? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, so, so let me preface it by this, you know, big deer and, and what I choose to shoot and put on a wall, that's all relative, right? I mean, I happen to be very fortunate and blessed that I, I get to hunt in, you know, both Missouri and Illinois. And, and so I'm, I'm being able to, to selectively choose a, a buck that, you know, I don't like to shoot anything that's, you know, four and a half years and, and, and older and, and most of my deer are five and a half and six and a half year old. And that's going to equate out to, you know, 150 inch rack here in the Midwest. So, so I'm very blessed. So I'll, I'll say that, 
you know, I've got some friends that, you know, obviously all across the country and they look at some of the deer I pass and they're like, you're stupid. And I'm like, well, it's, it's all relative. So, um, so I'm looking for more of an age class first, but, but also, you know, I, I want that corresponding or correlating rack. I, if, if it's a seven year old deer and he's 120 inch rack, I'm still not shooting. Him. I'm just being honest. I mean, it's, it, the rack plays a big part in it. So, um, so yeah, I'm looking for a certain age class, four and a half year olds, years and older, and and a pretty pretty nice you know headgear that that's worthy of putting on a wall. And so going back to the the 143 inch six, um, so yeah, I, I pulled into a parking lot and I had an area kind of figured out because it was it was November 11, actually it was November 12th, and we had seen I mean it, all the areas that I hunt predominantly every time I pulled into a parking lot or was driving, there would be a, a truck on the side of the road with Georgia plates, Tennessee plates, Kentucky plates, Florida. I mean, Alabama, I mean, our spots were getting overran. And so there was this one little patch of woods and it was like literally a 30 acre wood spot, but I'd walked it several times before shed hunting, different areas, different times of the year in the pre previous years. I knew it was just, it was just really super thick right by the highway so thick that you you almost have to turn your shoulders to walk through a lot of the trees and so my thought was if there's this much pressure everywhere in the traditional and I quote unquote traditional spots you know the funnels the the sloughs all the spots that everybody keeps hitting I mean there's got to be big deer pushed into that spot and so I, I targeted that spot as as a kind of a refuge if you will and uh, you know, like I said it was 30 acres and i I looked at it. We had a, a wind that allowed me to walk around completely around one side and come in from the back side. And those those little bitty saplings that grew up so thick and so tight and they have to the deer literally have to tunnel through there. They stop about halfway through that that parcel of woods. And so one of my favorite techniques and favorite places to set up on is is edges. I'll set up on not only I don't really like to set up on field edges. I like transition edges from pines to oaks or cedars to hickories or whatever whatever the the transition is but i love hunting edges and so i got up on the edge of these saplings where then it started opening up into larger areas and the wind was really just barely subtly in my face all night long and i was straining to look down and see it through those saplings and uh, right at last light i mean i hadn't seen a deer i'd sit there for three hours and i if you know, it's one of my favorite, favorite days to hunt. And, you know, I mentioned I hunt a lot of days, but I still, I, I'm not immune to thinking there are better days than others to be in the deer woods. I mean, obviously there are. And so, you know, that, that day is one of my absolute favorite days to be in the, be in a tree. And I was kind of mentally kicking myself for maybe choosing the wrong spot. I mean, there's only so many super great days. And uh, so right at last light, I hear a stick break. And the wind had kind of calmed down and it was dead silent. And I snapped, snapped my head to the left. I see a lone doe making her way right at the edge of that. And she literally came to my tree and she was a big mature doe. And she came to the bottom of my tree and sniffed where I'd climbed the tree, looked up at me. And I literally, I didn't move, but I just I averted my eyes. I, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, I don't want to look them right in the eyes. And, I, and so um, I averted my eyes. I looked out. And when I looked up and looked out, I looked 
there was probably about 75 yards behind her. I spotted a, a big, huge body brute just making a scrape right behind her. He was right on her trail, and he was just making a scrape right behind her. And so I kind of glanced down at her. She she looked away, and eventually she shuffled off, and the big deer came right behind her. And I actually almost shot him straight down at the tree. Um, he went about 25 yards. I drilled him right between his shoulders, blew at us hard on the way out, and he went about 25 yards and fell over, and that – that was the 143-inch six. Dude. Oh, my God. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. And, you know, that's a great example of, like, going into a spot that so many people would overlook. I mean, I'm not going to lie. The way, the way you described it, it seems like something that even I would overlook in some aspects because of those small saplings. Um, kind of funny you said that. I've got a buddy of mine who's starting to try – he lives in Illinois, and uh, I'm trying to get him to hunt an awesome little piece of public that's not too terribly far from him. And there's a spot on there that has a ton of little saplings like that that you can tell was an old field that they let grow back up. And uh, anyways, it's like, and he took some photos of it, and it seems very similar to like kind of what you're talking about. And that is like, I think, intimidating for a lot of guys. You see that, you're like, dude, there's no way. Like, there's there's no way to be able to kind of punch through that, get to the other side without spooking deer and be able to kill something. Uh, but again, yeah. you know, you had you had the guts to think that's where the deer are going to be at. You got in there and made it happen. So that's that's awesome um yeah and i'm not scared to hunt small trees either I, you know i mentioned for probably 10 or 15 years i hunted out of a lone wolf alpha hand climber and one of the first things i did was you know i figured out that i couldn't get in a tree as small as i i hunt a lot of small trees and i couldn't get in trees as small as i wanted with the with the lone wolf hand climber factory stock and i went home one night frustrated as all get out and figured out that the bolts that hold the two pivot pivot arms on the bottom stand were keeping my traction belt from sliding on through. And 10 minutes later, I had those bolts reversed and my traction arm will, will now slide all the way down until it, it'll fit on a four inch tree, four inch diameter tree. Oh, and wow. so, yeah, that's, that's every, I've, I went through a couple of lone wolf hand climbers. Now the first time I get one is I reverse those two bottom bolts. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure, you know, just listener beware. I'm sure it's voiding the warranty and everything else, but uh, it didn't matter. I mean, it does the exact same job. It just doesn't have the length of the bolt that's stopping the traction belt from going through. So uh, once you figured that out, man, there's no tree that I couldn't get in with that thing. That's awesome. That is freaking slick. Talk about DIY and a freaking uh, climber to really make it more efficient. Um that's that's pretty cool. Now, you know, what was another transition like for you to like try to start going out there? Yes, you're all, you're hunting, you know, all throughout Missouri and, and Illinois. And you said you, you said you hunt Illinois. Is that public as well, or do you have some private over there? What's the no, I've I uh, I only hunt public land. Yep, not oh. yeah, nine nine point. I mean, there's I have access to one small farm in Missouri, probably about ten minutes from me, that a friend from church gave me access to. But I actually only use it for my boys to, to gun hunt on because they haven't really transitioned hard into bow hunting yet. So we will go out there during gun season. And, and I've taken a couple does with a bow off it, but I try to save it just for the boys. But all my other hunting is public land. Now, is Illinois much different tactic wise from what you're doing in Missouri? Or is it pretty much the exact same thing just right across the river? No, it, believe it or not, it's tremendously different, even though I do a lot of hunting 45 miles from my house both ways in Missouri and Illinois. Now, in Missouri, I, I travel a lot more. I travel all the way up to the Oklahoma border, and, and I'll, st I'll throw my gear in the car, and, and I'll hunt a public land spot. Like Well, like two nights ago, I posted a video of a, of a pretty nice eight, you know, two-and-a-half-year-old eight that sniffed around the bottom of my tree, and, and um, he was over at Table Rock Lake. I was literally probably – 
75 yards from from the lake at that point. Uh, and I, that was just because I just threw my gear in the back of my car and I knew I would have some time at night to go. Uh, Illinois is a little bit more planned out. And and so the differences between the two, Missouri is a lot more forested. Um, they want to grow, you know, maybe more cattle over here. And, and Illinois is all about corn and soybeans. It's all agriculture. And so over there, I'm looking for more thickets and strips and and it, it's a it's a completely different you know it's a farm hunting scenario as opposed to you know more of a woods and and more of a topography change on on each hunt. Got you. Well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about kind of like your scouting technique. You know, what are you doing? Um, you know, maybe both in the off season, but also during the season to try to find the areas that you need to set up on. Especially, you know, maybe you get a wild hare and you want to try out a new piece of public. You know, what's the steps you normally go through uh, before you get boots on the ground? And once you get boots on the ground, what are you doing? Well, in the old days, it was, you know, it, like I said, I'm fairly new to the to the mobile app on X kind of a thing. You know, I, I ordered a lot of maps. I've got a file folder, believe it or not, of, of tons and tons of maps that I would order from conservation departments and, and look through those. And, you know, having a military background, I was trained in, you know, how to read topography and, and things like that. So, you know, I understood saddles and benches and, and pinch points and funnels pretty well from that right off the bat. And, you know, deer are lazy. They're not they're not any different than, than humans. You know, they're taking the easiest route they can to get from point A to point B. And and if if they can find a, a low spot in, in a ridge or or something like that, they're taking it. And obviously those are creating funnels and. And those are a, a, obviously a spot I'm zeroing in on before I even set foot on the on the area, uh, and that was before you know the the on X days. Now it's easy to do that, and you can just walk right to it on, you know, and and watch yourself walk to it as you're going. Um, so so that's when I'm in the forested areas. I'm looking more for things like that, you know, the saddles, the benches. Uh, when it's when it's more over in Illinois, and I'm more in ag country, it, it's you know the inside corners. It's uh, you know, trying to trying to find a, an edge that where, you know, they've had a burn or, or a, a cut cut over or a clear cut or something like that. And it's grown back. And and, um, you know, maybe it maybe it's close to, to an ag field. Maybe it's not. But those are the kind of areas I'm looking for over in Illinois. Would you talk? Would you mind kind of going in maybe a little bit more detail on inside corners? I hear a lot, I think a lot of guys, if you are listen enough to anything in, in the whitetail you know, media realm, you hear about that quite a lot when guys are hunting ag, and I think that can correlate to a bunch of different parts of the state. Cause, you know, down here in Alabama, there's there's ag on public land and private land and everything else, and you know, Mississippi's the same, Georgia, everything else like that too. Um, you know, explain how deer kind of use inside cores and what is your tactics when you're looking for a spot like that to either set up, I guess, on an observation hunt or actually going for a kill. Yeah, so so my inside corner strategy has changed somewhat over the years, and that's predominantly because of the pressure that has increased over the, the recent years. So I use an inside corner to answer your first question. An inside corner is a place that if you've got a square field and, and, and you've got woods off to the left of that corner, uh, you know, you've got woods kind of going up and down left and right of, on that field and north and south uh, left and right of, of the field too. So, so woods are, are on both both sides of that corner and the corner actually sticks into the woods a little bit is kind of the best way I can think of to explain it over the phone. But uh, you usually, and 
and I would say most of the time you'll find a trail on that inside corner going out at a, you know, a 45 degree angle right back into the woods. And it starts off as heavy and then it'll, it'll branch out as deer kind of, you know, spider web out through the woods. And I used to sit that inside corner real a lot. And, you know, I've, I've hung trail cameras on those inside corners. And, and nowadays with hunting pressure getting more and more and, and especially, and, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, a Pope and Young buck is behind every tree in Illinois. And that's the first place they want to go to on their, their rutcation. Uh, but the problem is that's where everybody's sitting at. So nowadays I want to I want to take a deeper dive. I want to go two, three, 400 yards deep down and, and find some place that may lead to that inside corner, but I'm not necessarily sitting that inside corner as much as I used to in years past. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I think that's pretty slick. And I've seen that firsthand in situations, especially in some areas that we've hunted in Alabama, actually a place that Andrew uh, missed the doe last year. Uh, those deer would absolutely pile in and out of that inside corner on, on one cor- on one side of the field. And, uh, you know, in some areas I can see that being like a really hot spot for a lot of guys to go to other areas, especially down here in the South. I do not feel like that is a, like I'm talking deep South. Don't feel yep. like that's nearly as popular with the average guy hunting, whether public or private land. Um, but it is kind of cool, especially if you, if you have any kind of like a, like a, uh, crp field or something like that and you see those inside cores and you can see those spider webbing effects once it comes out of the woods in that corner and then going right. back in especially like any kind of swamp or anything like that you can really see that from an aerial photo which is pretty slick um so that's awesome now you know let's talk a little bit more about kind of now jumping to water access because uh, you know we kind of talked timber talked that doesn't touch on ag you know when it comes to using water access you know, what is like the perfect scenario for you? And would you mind walking us through a hunt where, you know, water access maybe helped you out for sure? Yeah. So, so the perfect, perfect way for me to access water is that I can, I can get into it. And when I, when I pop out, no matter, it doesn't matter how far I have to paddle. Uh, the, the perfect way for me is, is to get out, pull up my canoe or my kayak and only have to travel 75 yards or less and be up in a tree. Uh, to me, it negates the advantage of water access if I'm having to leave a, a lot of ground disturbance and, and ground scent, you know, another two or three hundred yards to my stand. Now, if or or tree that I'm going to hunt, I mean, if if I have to, that's fine. But if you're talking perfect scenario, it's the fact that I can pop up over over the levee or over the ditch bank or, or whatever river bank it is. And within 50, 60, 70 yards, I'm up in a tree and. Because then, then you're really taking advantage of the scenario of not leaving a lot of ground scent around. Um, I can think of one example. I've got a 167 and four eighths inch, you know, really straight, clean tin with double brows. He's so he's a, he's the 12. If you want to cut his count as double brows, and I'd seen that deer five times that year at different spots. I had him almost under me at dark one time. Couldn't get a shot. Uh, he, he ran through too quick and I just kept, I was bouncing around. I knew I was in his nearest core area. And I mean, I was right on top of his bedding area. And like I said, five times I'd seen this deer and I was really getting worried that I was just pressuring him too hard. But at the same time, I, I knew it was kind of a now or never moment. And I, I took a canoe in and popped up over a, a levee and set my stand. And again, it was, it was, you know, just probably, I don't know, I was probably seven or eight yards off of the, off the levee area. And, and he came through right probably 30 minutes before dark and I was able to drill him at about 11 yards. <laughs> Dang, man. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. So in a, in a spot like that, 
just out of curiosity, what's a deer like that bedding in? Uh, do you, are you seeing any consistency with that? You know, so a lot of the deer around here bed in the thickest, nastiest, gnarliest crap that, you you know, what we would normally go kick up rabbits out of when I, I alluded to the, my background growing up, what we would want to rabbit hunt in, that's what the deer are bedding in here because they know the average person isn't, you know, you're not getting on your hands and knees and crawling. And, and that's that's when you know you found the area. If you're shed hunting in the because you don't really want to go bust them out during season. But if you go out here and you shed, if you if, if you're just looking around and, and you drop to your hands and knees and you see tunnels that you can crawl through, that's the deer's bedding area. And, and that's where a lot of them spend their time at during the daylight hours around here that's cool man i love this like little series we've been doing with guys like yourself because we've had other guys literally say exactly what you just said as far as like where the deer bedding like literally saying yeah you know where you'd rabbit hunt that's where that's where you find good bedding areas <laughs> so i joke a lot on my facebook page i call myself the world's worst shed hunter and and there's some truth to that but but a lot of it is because i am on exclusively 100 percent public land and people are you know sheds is a shedding is a huge thing nowadays and if you don't find it within a day or two of it falling someone else will and so if you're looking in the areas it's easy to walk you're not finding many sheds, at least I'm not. So a lot of times it, when people look at me now, I send pictures to my friends and literally I am just, I mean, I, I'm bleeding from, from my elbows <laughs> down, my neck, my cheeks. I mean, I'm getting, and, but I'll find a shed or two and some, some nice ones. And, and people are like, I can't believe you do that to find those sheds. I'm like, that's where you've got to go to get away from people that are finding normal sheds, if you will. And if you think about that, that's where the deer are going to get away from people during season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So kind of expanded on that a little bit. So let's say we found that bedding area. How are, how do you know how close you can get to that bedding area? You know, some of it's, you know, an educated guess. I mean, I, if you walk it during shedding season, if you've got that luxury that you're not traveling out of state and you can walk it and, and the beds will, you know, they'll stick out. I mean, you, literally you may have to get on your hands and knees for 60 yards and crawl through some stuff or 20 or whatever, but you you'll see when you find the pockets of beds, you'll know uh, that's the best Intel that you can have to, to know where the, where they're actually bedding in that thicket of briars or whatever it may be. So that, you know, come next fall, you, you, feel comfortable that man i can get you know right on the edge of this and hopefully he'll he'll emerge and from that tunnel right at last light or whatever um i've i've busted through and pushed pushed through into some of that during the middle of season and, and climbed a huge you know tall tree to see if i could shoot down into it I, I haven't had great luck at that yet mostly most of my kills come from sitting the edge and just you know being very very cautious and and not making a lot of commotion um, but I've tried it and, but so far it hasn't paid off when you're sitting, when you're setting up on the edge of that, how do you know where to set up? So it, it goes back to knowing where they're, they're feeding hopefully. And with ag fields, I, you know, you'll, you'll hear some of the, some of the real gurus out there who, who love soybeans all through the year. I don't, uh, as soon as those suckers start turning yellow, I abandon soybeans immediately. To me, corn is king all day long, especially a cut cornfield. I'll take a cut cornfield over just about anything. And so, um, again, when you're hunting Illinois, that's you know you've got a lot of cut corn 
cornfields around. And so I am, I'm trying to place myself between the bedding area and the closest cut cornfield, hopefully as close to the bedding area as I can get. Because as I said, as you get, you know, as you mature in your hunting career and progress into wanting to put larger bucks on your wall, those larger bucks a lot of times don't move until later and later and later and later. You need to get closer and closer and closer to the bedding area. So I want to put myself on the very edge as close as I think I can get to that buck's bedding area, but knowing that he's going to come that way to the cut corn or, or whatever fit food source that I think he's going to. All right. We got to jump on this cut corn because uh, a place I really think I'm going to be hunting in uh, Tennessee for sure this year uh, has some serious uh, corn on there. And on this velvet hunt we had in August, a buddy of mine saw, and he, he's killed, I think, one or two deer right at 160. And he mm-hmm. said this a deer through his range finder, because he didn't even bring his binos, was that all bit or more of 155 inches or bigger. Uh, and it's in an area where there's a ton of corn. And I've never hunt, I've never hunted corn before or cut corn. And to be honest, coming from an area where that's not the norm, hunting stuff like that is very intimidating, okay? I've okay. heard corn can be fantastic, but what is what is your goal if you find a fresh-cut cornfield? First off, how long is it normally good that's draw, you know, drawing deer there? And also, what is your overall tactic when you find a fresh-cut cornfield that some bucks are working? So, I mean, cut corn to me will stay – I mean, I've hunted it when – combines were in the field and it's like the freaking dinner bell i mean it was standing corn and pretty much 99 percent still standing corn and when the combines come there and and are on it dude i i want to be there i mean the next day is good but i will start the the second the combines enter that field and start combining the the deer know it it's like ringing a dinner bell so it starts that second literally and i will stay on cut corn through january through january 17th when our season closes um the bean the unfortunately modern day combines are so efficient at harvesting soybeans unless you pay someone to leave a patch of standing soybeans once a combine goes through a soybean field here in the midwest it is worthless to me i mean you might find you might find a bean pot or two somewhere, but but really, to me, in my mind, and I know there's going to be some guys out there who go, oh, man, I love cut soybean fields. Well, more power to you. I, they don't work for me. But I will take a cut soy, a cut cornfield, and I'll hunt it from the time a combine gets into it to clo- the last day of season. So hopefully that helps you. Oh, dude, that's, that's pretty epic. Now, I mean, is the corn normally staying good for, for that long? I mean, even with rain and everything, that's still attracting deer to those areas? Yeah, absolutely. Because there'll there'll be now, again talking about efficiency of modern combines. I mean, they'll get ninety nine percent of it, but they leave a lot more scrap and kernels and scattered scattered corn and 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 sometimes the deer themselves will knock it off the the stalks during you know right before harvest or something. They're running through, or maybe they're just you know maybe maybe coons are knocking it off the stalks. I mean, believe it or not, I mean you'll if you once you hunt a, a cut cornfield, you'll see some major paths going in. And at first, you might think it's it's deer and and sometimes it's beaver, believe it or not, but a lot of times it's raccoons will just flock to it. So, so you got deer out there knocking it down. You got coons knocking it down. And so by the time a, a, a combine goes through there, there's enough on the ground that it'll leave a little bit of a food source for the next couple months easy. That's that you just got my blood pumping even more so because that means this spot's going to be even better. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude, yeah. that's got me so pumped up now. 
when you're hunting that, are you truly trying to key in on, are you trying to do an observation sit first and try to figure out where they're coming into the field and then trying to set up right there? Or are you trying to find a place that they're trying to work to in that field? So it really depends on my target there. If I'm, if I'm after does and filling the freezer, which, you know, obviously if I'm killing enough, you know, put enough venison in the freezer that we haven't had to buy meat in 25 years, I, I do frequently target does. And if I'm targeting does, I'm sitting at the corn edge because whether I'm in the right area or not, a doe is eventually going to walk that tree line. They're going to walk in the field five, six yards out and just walk out in front of me. I mean, that's 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 pretty much the easiest way to go kill a deer there is. Sit a cut cornfield edge and at some point one's going to walk by you. Um, so so that's that's a, definitely one modus operandi, one way to do it. Uh, if I'm wanting the bigger bucks, though, unless it's getting close, you know, if you're at, you know, October 30th and you're closing in on the rut here, you know, those does are going to drag those bucks around. And as long as you can, you know, keep the wind in your favor and don't give away your position early, you know, and, and don't flush off the does off the field, you know, they'll eventually come out there and sniff them out. If, if it's earlier than that, where they're not really chasing the does, they're not coming out and seeking in that seeking phase, then you're going to have to dive deeper and, and get closer to the bedding area like we talked about earlier. Got you. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that's that's got me kind of fired up about this area and really just a couple other pieces of public land in Tennessee, which I'll be hunting Tennessee quite a bit this year. And, you know, in the past, when I moved up there about, I guess it was a year ago, um, I saw corn and at first I was excited, but then I was like, how the heck do you hunt this crap? And, uh, you know, kind of hearing from you and I've heard from other guys, but definitely hearing from you about, you know, when it's cut, that's the time to really focus in on it. It's really got me excited yep. just because. Uh, not only is it kind of taking away some of the limiting cover in some of these areas, but you know, if you can find where they're coming out into that, dude, it's got me this excited, uh, for sure. So, you know, we kind of covered a little bit of ag, covered corn quite a bit. And I know we got listeners from all across the country from, I mean, down in Florida, all the way up to the Northeast and out West. But, you know, if you're not hunting ag, I'm sorry, but where I'm hunting this year, <laughs> I'm very curious on that's why I'm asking these questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you'll be of, you'll be well you'll be way better off with it corn with it cut because on, they can just live in it night and day when it's standing and and that's some tough conditions. I mean, that's a condition where that's that's a spot where literally you almost want to wait on a, a brisk wind and just work your way methodically, still hunt and walk through the, the you know the rows and and because they will literally bed in it and they don't need to leave. They've got security cover. They've got. You know, they can get enough water out of the out of the corn, the, the food material themselves. And a lot of times there will be standing water out in the rows anyway. And and they've got food, water and security cover. I mean, they do not need to leave. So it's such a great thing when they cut cornfields around here because we'll have thousands of acres of corn where I hunt. And so it literally will force them to go into the woods finally. So it's like, oh, thank you. Yeah, I was actually scouting a, uh, a piece. It was a conservation area somewhere in northern so northern northern uh missouri and that was a situation i found there was there there wasn't there was some ag on the on the property but there's a lot on the off you know on the corners uh, of the property yeah. a lot of corn and i actually got into a spot that was very much i think overlooked because you had a it was from a parking area and all the major trails coming from the parking area i mean all went south and i decided to go west and the property line was only about 100 yards from there but you had to walk through 40 yards of i mean the biggest briar rose bushes i've ever seen like thorns like i've never had briars like destroy jeans until that time 
Uh, yep. I walked out like I got shot with like some buckshot or something. But once I got back there and got into that corner, there was a ton of bucks on. And that's where you had four different edges coming together in that corner. You had corn. Uh, you had corn to the east. You had to the northeast. Um, that next field was corn, but it was a little bit younger corn. Then you had a fence row right there. Directly north, you had a fence row. And directly northwest was a uh, like a CRP field. And then it was timber right there in the public. I mean, it was ridiculous, the amount of sign there. And I'm yep. kicking myself. I never went back and bought a tag. Oh, um, man. Yeah. Yeah, no. you, you literally found my dream scenario of, you know, you got ag and, and you got all those edges. I mean, yeah, that, that literally is the utopia of, of deer hunting for me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, Andrew, do you have, do you have a question you want to run with? Um, on, not, not necessarily on the ag stuff, just cause I'm so unfamiliar with it. Um, but one thing that I wanted to ask about is what kind of buck sign do you put a lot of, uh, like, do you hold to high regards? Like, are you looking for scrapes or rubs or either one or neither? Or what are, you, what are your thoughts on buck sign? Yeah, so, you know, my thoughts on buck sign is more that he's revealing that he's there. Um, I, you know, like a lot of novice hunters early in the day, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I would sit on a rub line and I read Greg Miller's Rubline Bucks book, and, you know, I always thought that was, man, I, I found the panacea of buck sign. I mean, this is, I'm going to kill one, and I I don't know if I ever killed a buck sitting on bucks on a, on a Rubline. Um, I've, I've killed some in the area, but it wasn't because I was actually literally hunting a Rubline. Uh, same goes for scrapes. I've set over scrapes and not had a lot of success. Now, what I like to find, though, is a lot of buck sign in an area that looks good, like, you know, that that meets all my criteria of all the edges and and there's there's bedding area really close and a food source close and, and it's transitioning from one type of cover to another. I'll hunt it because of the cover transition and and more so than because there's a rub there or or scrapes there. Now, I want I'm obviously it it really encourages me to find that sign there but i'm hunting it because of the transition area not because of the the rub line or the scrape line gotcha okay so so you find it and you're just like okay cool he's here now let's actually figure him out yeah yeah exactly that's a good way to put it do you distinguish uh like different kinds of buck sign do you do you think that like you can roughly tell the size of a deer based on the sign it leaves you know i think there's a lot of merit to that i think once a once a you know, I've found some rubs in, in some of the areas in the Midwest that after a while it gets so big, it's like, okay, this is not just a normal buck rub. This is a signpost rub. I mean, there's probably every buck. I mean, there's probably spikes coming out here and hitting this because every buck that walks in this area is rubbing this tree. I mean, you're talking, you know, like little small telephone pole sized trees, you know, that, that now moved beyond the realm of, a, of a good buck and it's just now a signpost like a you know a, a hood size you know car hood size scrape you hear about in, in magazine articles and stuff that's not necessarily a, a normal scrape anymore so i'd almost rather find a good three to four inch diameter rub you know 15 or 20 of those within a you know a quarter mile area or so i put more stock into that or a three to four hundred yard area if you will it's probably more realistic i put more stock into finding good three four five inch 
diameter size trees rubbed than you know a huge rub that you'll occasionally find out in the midwest i know somebody down in florida or alabama may be going oh my god that's unrealistic a, a telephone size rub tree we we have them here um and and sometimes you'll find a rub on a telephone pole out in the middle of a field it, it ha- that happens too but i don't really put as much stock on that as i want something i know a good 160 170 inch deer is living in the area if i can find you know 15 or 20 you know, four to five inch trees rubbed in two to 300 yards or so. That's, that's really starting to turn my crank a little bit. Is there a, a, like a time limit on these rubs to where they become irrelevant to you? Well, I mean, I want it, I want them to happen. You know, I'm, I'm trying to hunt that area if I'm going to really focus in on a rub area. And again, I, I don't let that dictate my hunting too much. I, I used to, and I found that I was wasting my time. But, you know, I want, I'm looking for that there's fresh shavings on the ground. You know, there's, there's hair still stuck on the tree. Uh, there's, there's fresh tracks in front of it where he, you know, pushed himself into the tree. And, and you know, I'm looking for a fresh sign. I, I don't want it to be, you know, a month old. I mean, to me, that, that doesn't give me a lot of hope that he's still there. I mean, he may be, but, uh, but yeah, I get a lot more excited if there's all the fresh sign there in addition to me wanting to hunt that area to begin with. Yeah. Jacob, you got any questions on the uh, buck sign? Uh, not necessarily, but I do have a question just on, you know, kind of more scouting, which is, do you run trail cameras at all on any of this public land? So uh, I, I've ran the gamut. I, I have and I have not. Um, and, and I've got a lot of thoughts around that. So back when I used to run them a lot, I, I, you know, of course, a couple things I figured out, a lot, figured out really quickly that that red light cameras, red flashes scare the heck out of deer. And and I've argued that, believe it or not, I've argued that with a bunch of people online. And I have got so I used to set cameras on video mode and I've got so many video cameras of a red light coming on and bucks just turning tail and turning inside out. So I, I made the move from red light cameras to black lights. I noticed that they will still alter their methods and, and their travel patterns just based on seeing a camera alone, period. And and sometimes people will argue with me. They'll say, well, that's because they can hear the camera. They, they hear the, the clicking or the motor drive. Some, but I'll have one camera turned off and one camera turned on and, and, and at a different height, and which I, I'll get to that in a second. I don't, I don't set trail cameras at, at three and four foot anymore. Um, but I, I've captured them where they'll walk up to a camera that's not on turn around and you won't see that that deer again forever and i've got it's funny i I had a a buddy of mine in tennessee zach owsley was hunting and he actually watched a buck come up to a camera sidestep it go around the back of it and walk off and he said he never got a picture of a buck because the buck knew the camera was there and so it provided zero intel he just happened to be in the tree and saw it uh so i i believe mature deer they they pick up on cameras really readily so so for two reasons one is that is the main one and then on public land cameras have a tendency of walking off a lot uh i've lost hundreds of dollars on that as a lot of people have so i nowadays will take a a wild edge step in with me or, or the bottom of a lone wolf stick back when i used to use those just take one or two in and i'll hang my cameras at 10 10 to 12 feet angled down and it's amazing how the human, the average human does not look up. I mean, I've had so many hunters walk underneath me during my hunting career. They just don't look up on average. And so having the camera up there helps with theft issues tremendously. It also helps with having deer 
notice that something is completely out of place as minute as a camouflaged camera box on a tree. And, um, and that's, that's helped tremendously. But to get to the point of your question, mainly that that's kind of all extra stuff. Um, I don't use them as much anymore. I, I, I like the thrill of going in and figuring something out. And when I, that buck shows up, by and large, 99% of the time, I've never seen that buck before. And, and that's pretty cool to me. See, I love that. That's one reason I love hunting public land. And you know, I'd like to run more cameras, but to be honest, there's something exciting about seeing a deer that you may have never seen before. And just like, yep, I don't like that excitement of like, oh my gosh, it's like you never know what you can get into every time. It's fantastic. But we also have friends uh, like Jeff Homan who lives in South, deep South Alabama. And he uses uh, trail cams to actually backtrack bucks back to their beds uh, on public yep. land. And, and kills them like that and that's awesome but there's something that i find very i don't know if it's like a uh there's a nostalgia to it or just like not using a camera and going in and you're you know there's deer in the area but you don't know exactly what you're getting into until you're sitting in that sand and then you know maybe a doe comes by or a 160 inch deer who knows um totally agree and i that's where some of the backlash and i don't know maybe I don't know if backlash is the right word, but but boredom, if you will, maybe a, a better word of when we watched outdoor TV, you know, be it Sportsman's Channel, Pursued, what Outdoor Channel, whatever it is, and you see the TV host sitting up there, and he goes, "Oh, it's Curly," and I'm like, dude, if if you've got your deer, if you know, I mean, God bless you if you can name them and all that stuff, but if you're at the point where you are so intimate with your deer and and you can pattern them so well and you know every deer on your farm to me that just like you said removes not nostalgia but removes the excitement and as a viewer i know i, I feel that way and as a hunter I, I i feel that way i'm like i don't i don't really want to know every deer that's out here by picture and what his frame looks like and he's got a, a acorn you know hole in his left main beam and i i want to i want him to trip my trigger when he walks up to the tree and and yeah, that's, that's really cool to me. So, so I've really backed off. I've got, I, I used to work, do a lot of writing for Browning on their, on their website. And, and every time I'd write a story, they'd send me a trail camera. So I've got a ton of Browning trail cameras and they're awesome trail cameras. Most of them sit on the shelf unused. So, yeah, I feel a lot the same way you do. Yeah. I kind of, yeah. I kind of ascribe to that as well. Like, uh, I'll use trail cameras, but I definitely don't take them to the extent that some people do. Uh, cause yeah, I mean, I like, well, one, I just don't like dealing with them. Uh, yep. and two, I, I do think that they kind of spook deer to a certain extent. Like I, I distinctly remember the first time I, that dawned on me cause I was like, you know what, I'm going to put this thing on video mode and it was during the daytime and yep. I, I put it on video and I have, which I have a picture of this buck's skull. We actually found him dead after the season, but big old 10 point comes walking past the camera with his little like scraggly six point buddy. And the video starts, and they both whip their heads around and look straight at the camera. And they sit there and stare at it for about two seconds, and then both run off. And I, yep. I like, got home, watched that video, went and got back in my truck, and went drove out there and uh, went and pulled the camera. I was like, nope, not having that. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so I definitely I definitely can, can see where you're coming from on that. Uh, well, Jacob? Something. On, on the trail cameras, which is kind of funny, uh, n- nothing against any one company or anything, but I remember growing up on our family farm down here in Bibb County, Alabama. Um, it was a bunch of 
planted pines my uncle had put out there it used to be all uh cattle pastures and he planted them probably about 40 years ago and we've already harvested them probably about 10 years ago but i remember as a kid being out there and like walking back or like coming out of a shooting house or something and looking up into the up into the timber you know 80 to 100 yards away and seeing a flash because he always used cutting back cameras back when yep. they were like the white light flash yep and, yep. and i thought i'm like and you see these flashes in the woods where he had these cameras and i'm like I don't I, – how can that not affect a deer? Right. Uh, and I always say that he, he never thought it did. But, I mean, if you're getting, you know, blinded by a white light on a flash, that, that's got to do something, in my opinion. Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah, so. I, I remember one of the, the most shocked times was I walked through a little patch of public land. Well, it's been four or five years ago. And someone had a white flash camera. And, I, you know, most people won't use them. I've got a trail camera guru buddy who, who loves them because of the quality of pictures. But most hunters won't, won't use them. And, man, one lit me up at about 3.30 in the morning one, one morning. I was going in really early trying to catch a buck coming back to bed. And, man, it lit the whole – I mean, it looked like a flash of lightning went off. Dude, that was I, I was so discombobulated. I mean, I couldn't. I didn't even. I couldn't even find the camera. I looked around for it, and I, it had blinded me so bad. I'm like, I, I just went on my way. I was like, gosh, that was, it was amazing. It just lit me up. So someone out there has got a picture of me at about three thirty in the morning going to a to a spot. So, uh, yeah, that'd be funny. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's uh, kind of we're on the same point there. Now, uh, Greg, I got a question for you. You know. Public land hunting and people getting into public land hunting, I feel, is getting more and more popular now because more and more yep. people are talking. And the opportunity is there, and guys are tired are tired of paying, you know, high dollars to be in a lease with 20 or 30 other guys or being in a hunting club with 40 or 50 other guys and family members and have all this hunting pressure. And they're realizing that public land, it's almost, in a lot of cases, especially in the Deep South, less pressured than some hunting clubs or leases. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. With that being said, for a new guy getting into public land hunting, what do you think he's going to have the most trouble with, especially like maybe in your area of the country, uh, you know, just kind of getting started? You know, what's he probably going to struggle with and what can he probably do or he or she probably do right off the beginning that kind of maybe shortens that learning curve for them? You know, there's a lot of ways to go with that question. I, I think the, the thing is a lot of people don't, they're probably not going to expect the the competition. They're, they're going to be surprised by the amount of competition is, is what I think the, the first thing they're, you know, they're going to par- pull up to a parking lot and there'll be two or three other trucks there already. And they may go find a spot. And just like I was talking about two, you know, what was it? A, a last or the first week that I went and found that little water source and someone had already hung a stand there. Uh, you know, so that's, that can be deflating. Don't let that deflate you. Just realize that you, you know, if you, what we say when we're elk hunting is if you go a mile off the, off the road, you're, you're leaving behind 80% of the people. Well, whitetails hunting is the same way. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a mile off the road. If, if, if that's what you want to do, fine. And, and there's so much, you know, so, so, so much great technology with lighter weight stands, with saddles, with, you know, the advent of carrying out, quartering up deer and carry them out in pack frames. I mean, that used to never be talked about and it's something I've done quite frequently now. Um, so, so there's ways to, to get away from your competition, but don't let that competition discourage you. That would be my number one thing. Um, you know, if, if you go out there during the rut, you know, everyone knows the rut in the Midwest is, you know, November 3rd through the 12th. I've, I make it a running joke at work that I tell people I've got a standing vacation from November 3rd th- through November 12th for the rest of my life. And I do. 
I mean, but if you go out there, don't be surprised to see a hundred other cars on the road. And, you know, that's when everyone goes out there. So don't get discouraged. Go out there October 20th, you know, go November 27th when everyone's back at work. And so don't let the, there are ways around competition, be it whether it's going deeper, whether it's hunting overlooked spots or whether it's hunting when other people aren't there. That's the best way to do it. Beat them to the punch. I used to get so discouraged hunting public land. I've saved my best spots for November 3rd through the 12th. And guess who was there November 3rd through the 12th? Everybody and their brother. And I'd saved that spot for a month and a half. And so now, guess what? I dive in there and hit it hard now, not November 3rd. I, I hit it in October 10th, October 15th. Whenever you know there's a slight change in temperature, when the wind's right, I'm there. Because I know the guy down in Florida or Georgia or Alabama that's chomping at the bit to get there November 3rd, I'm going to beat him to the spot. So hunt when other people aren't there. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's that's huge. I mean, and I've heard a lot of guys that live in your area of the country, really anywhere in the Midwest, that said, you know, the, or their favorite time of the hunt is that late October. And when they're hunting publicly, late October and then going into mid to late November, just because – you know, that first two weeks of November is pretty crazy. It was just with the out-of-staters or just, you know, guys yep. want to go out there and take their vacation time. But, you know, I've heard of a lot of guys having a lot of success, especially later on in November or, you know, that first or the second week or two in October. Um, yeah. Which I be slick and especially, hey, you know, just a shout-out to all the other out-of-staters trying to do a trip like that. That might be a good time to go up there. <laughs> yeah, a absolutely. You know, I, I hate to say it, I'm not a I'm not a climate change person like we've been talking hearing about for the last couple of days or so. But there, it's undeniable that we do have warmer trends right now, and so sometimes it's still really hot in November third through the twelfth or so when we traditionally used to slay a lot of our deer, and so it may not be getting that first cold, good cold snap until a little bit later than we used to see it all the time. So yeah, the later weeks can be really productive now. Now, another thing, uh, Greg, you pretty much, do you pretty much strictly bow hunt or do you ever take out a firearm or anything? What, what is your style of hunting? So I killed, uh, I, I mentioned growing up with a BB gun. I, I got to be a really good shot and, and just, you know, if I could, my theory was, was if I could see it, I could kill it. And that was literally no joke. And so I shot my first deer with a, with a rifle and I was so let down that with the experience of what I expected deer hunting to be was it was more like me you know shooting a blackbird back in the day or a sparrow it's just like see the see the animal pull the trigger it dies and it was that emotionless to me really and i was like that just kind of sucked and so uh yeah so that so deer number one came with a rifle the the next close to 100 or whatever it had been have all been with a bow i, I haven't picked up a gun to to shoot a a big game animal with including turkeys uh in 26 20 25 years whatever it's been so i shot one deer and uh that was it so i i'm exclusively 100 percent a bow hunter sweet 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 that's pretty cool i mean again that's the opportunity there i mean there's so much opportunity especially like a state that you live in um or i mean arkansas is very similar too where you have such a short gun season yeah um you know it don't it just makes sense to be an archery hunter unless you it, you're, you're just not that into it and you're just going out there hanging out with friends and everything you're going to go kill some deer and be done with it 
Um, yeah, most of the friends that I have that, that gun hunt today, and, and again, I'm not I'm not anti-gun. I mean, God, I'm, you know, I'm an RA member. I carry everywhere I go. We've got, you know, I mean, I am 100% invested in, in gun ownership. I just choose, and I stress the word choose, I choose not to pursue deer with a gun because it's not fulfilling for me but i am no way bashing gun hunting if if that's the way the method that you want to choose to to pursue deer fine i mean i'll support you 100 percent. i've got friends who go well you know what you're blessed with ability to do 100 sits a year i'm not i can i've got four or five days i can go out if i want to kill a deer i've got to do it in those four or five days well you know that makes a lot of sense but um you know with me having the time to do it and and the the access that i do and I just and there's something about, you know, Ted Nugent talks about that mythical flight of an arrow. Dude, that that does it for me. I love I love the the pulling the you know, releasing the shoulder blades and and the, the arrow screams off your, you know, snaps off your string and and that flight and hearing that thwack or that thump. I, every part of bow hunting just resonates with me. I just absolutely love it. But I, I do want to clarify, I'm, I'm not you know, anti-gun at all in, in hunting. I just, I just choose not to do it. It just, I love the bow, bow hunt. Awesome. Well, hey, let's, let's wrap this up. I know we've taken up a lot of your time um, and we've kind of covered a lot of really cool topics, but I'm going to leave this up to you. You know, what is, what is something that you think would be important for anyone to know about just hunting, you know, that Midwest, you know, whether you're hunting in, uh, you know, Southern Missouri, uh, you know, Illinois, whatever the situation is hunting public land, you know, what's a tip or something you would leave the listeners with uh, as kind of like wrap this up? Oh, you know, as far as the whole public land deal, I, I think it kind of goes back to, you know, what we were just talking about, about why I choose to bow hunt versus gun hunt or why I choose to not use trail cameras. I think it's a it's a it's a theme that we've woven throughout our conversation all night. And, and that's the satisfaction of getting it done on your own terms. You know, I, I've, I've got some friends who have huge leases and I've got a really good buddy of mine who has 4,000 acres that he farms over in Kansas and he kills some monster deer. I mean, his, his brother killed a, a, a 204 on his land. And but you know what? I here's the tip I would leave. I think you as a listener will will get more. You'll garnish more reward. You'll you'll see more enjoyment and you'll get more personal satisfaction out of going and killing a 120 or 130 inch buck. On, on public land then you will kill in 160 or 170 inch off of a lease is there anything wrong with it absolutely not but if you're looking for that thrill of personal accomplishment of an unguided do-it-yourself over-the-counter hunt public land will absolutely provide it for you and that's that's my encouragement to you is, is get out there and do it and uh, you know you'll fail along the way a lot i did and still do but but the, when you get it done, it's so satisfying that that's the message I'd, I'd leave with with the listener. Perfect. Yeah, well, yeah, Greg. Hey, listen, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, really have kind of appreciate really just following along with you more so over this last year or so. Uh, and can I see everything you've done with, you know, Wild Edge and uh, everything you're probably just going to be doing in the future. So. It's been a really cool time, you know, talking with you this evening. I've really enjoyed it. I really have. Uh, I'm actually going to take a lot of this to heart for sure. And I actually can't wait for this episode to come out because I'm going to listen to it a few times, especially on tactics for hunting uh, Tennessee on some ag. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna really enjoy that. But, man, we appreciate you coming out. Um, 
also, where can people kind of follow along with what you got going on with uh, just what you're doing yourself, along with Wild Edge and any of your articles that should be coming out? Yeah, so I do. Uh, you, you mentioned I do a lot of work with Wild Edge now, and uh, so if you go to Wild Edge's Facebook page, you'll see uh, I, I publish my writing in there monthly now. So I, I write some kind of a feature article or blog on a monthly basis. Um, we have a we have a group called Saddle Up that uh, Wild Edge kind of runs, and but everybody I don't care who you are affiliated with or or what product you run or use, you're you're welcome to post in there. I post in there frequently, and so in Saddle Up or Wild Edge is the best two places to find me. And uh, we've got another group called Wild Edge Tribe that is just it's all outdoors. It's not saddle hunting at all. If you trot lining or fishing or trapping, whatever you're into, you can get there. So those three places, Wild Edge Tribe. Uh, Wild Edge's Facebook, you know, official page, and then Saddle Up are the best three places to find me. And shoot me a PM if you got questions. I'd be happy to uh, answer them as much as I could. All right, everybody. We hope you uh, enjoyed that episode with Mr. Greg Staggs. Uh, I liked it. I think I got a lot out of it. Jacob, what did you think? Yeah, it was it was really awesome. It was cool to talk to a guy um, who's had a ton of success, you know, just hunting public land in his region, the country. And kind of like explain to us over you know the 26 years he's been doing it, what he's learned and what really helps him be successful every year. So that was legit, dude, and uh, really got me super excited. So especially like his whole thoughts on you know cut corn, uh, which again I had never even really thought about, and also his uh, kind of him explaining how he likes to hunt inside corners uh, when he can, as long as there's no hunt pressure. So. Yeah, that was that was that was really cool, and I really liked Greg. Anyways, he's he's a super good guy. It was good to finally get him on. Yeah, he he's a nice guy, man. I'm glad that we did finally get him on. Um, what what would you say was your biggest takeaway from the whole episode? Like, what are you most excited about implementing, or what what got you fired up the most? Yeah, I, I, well, again, how he hunts cor- cut corn pretty much you know, the whole year, but you know, we have a lot of listeners from across the country, you know, some live where they have ag, some do not. Um, but if you live where there is ag, you know, his whole thoughts on cut corn was really fascinating, uh, especially how long it can hold and attract deer. Uh, and then also him talking about kind of looking for overlooked spots. Uh, you know, we talk about that all the time and his idea for overlooked spots may be a little bit different from ours because we're hunting more, I'd call like big timber, uh, where he's not always doing that. And uh, also his whole thoughts on, you know, he's finding a lot of these big deer, just a lot of deer in general, in areas where, you know, traditionally guys would think to go hunt rabbits, where it's like super thick, nasty cover, um, and those deer get in there, especially when the pressure gets up, uh, hunting pressure gets up. Uh, so definitely after hearing him talk about that, and also hearing from guys like Adrian Farley and uh, like Glenn Solomon uh, talk about, you know, finding deer in these super thick areas, uh definitely i'm going to start kind of keying in on that and trying to find areas like that for sure yeah i liked it too uh i i just and i said it in the regular episode i just love how all these guys say the exact same thing about finding deer whether it's uh glenn in south georgia adrian in central alabama or uh now greg up in missouri um talking about hunting these thickets so that gets me really excited um and it's something that we're trying to implement more right now as we're hunting in georgia i mean because we're we're in Georgia right now hunting, uh, like as we've been doing these episodes. So we've been starting to implement them a little bit and we're starting to have better success for sure. Uh, it's, it's become a game of trying to narrow down the good cover basically. Um, 
if you've listened to this before, if you've listened to us before, you know that we've been really keying in on this one parcel on a big destination food source, which was a uh, basically a giant food plot uh, that's on the public property. Well, um, that food that food plot is actually a dove field, and they have shot it and shot it and shot it, and the deer just aren't really visiting it like they were before. Uh, they're coming. I'm sure they're still coming at night. But it's just not getting the same activity that it was getting before. Uh, so that spot, you know, and that's the, that's the thing, hunting public land. This is this is what makes public land public land is stuff like that that's just out of your control. Uh, so we just kind of had to adapt. And so me and Michael uh, from The Unrested have been just kind of splitting up, dividing and conquering a little bit, kind of bouncing around this place, <laughs> which... Uh, I have a story about about trying to get to uh, do do some water access, which was kind of sketchy. Um, but we've uh, we've been bouncing around trying different kinds of cover. And one cool thing about this place is that there's a lot of different uh, aged cutovers, and we found that the cutovers that were cut in 2011 seem like they're holding the most deer for whatever reason. Uh, pretty much everywhere we go on the property, the 2011 clear cuts are really really holding some deer which is uh, interesting because they are that, that thick cover that people have been talking about. Like they're what we've been looking for, so to speak. Yeah. How big are those pines in those areas? Uh, they're they're, they're kind of small for being that age of a cutover. I don't know if they waited to plant them or if they – well, I know they didn't naturally let them regen because uh, they're planted in rows. But they're probably – oh, gosh – I don't I don't know about diameter, but they're probably like ten to twelve feet high, uh, and there's a lot of sunlight getting into them, so it's nice and thick underneath. Uh, but the tree, I'll tell you this: they're not big enough to get a saddle in for sure. You can't get a saddle in them. Well, I, I went to a spot today. It's kind of funny you said that. I went to a spot today. I've been wanting to scout uh, on some public, and I got in there, dude, and I was like. I don't think I can get a saddle on most of these trees. You're going to have to use a small lock on. Um, this is how you know, many branches there are on these pine trees, dude. Um, oh, yeah. But you want to go in there and just way before she's in, just completely clear off a couple of trees where you just like take all the limbs off. But I mean, you know, you're asking a lot from, you know, a tree that's only maybe, shoot, you know, a, a big one there is probably eight inches in diameter. Um, so that's gonna be a little tricky. Thank God I got a, a small lock on that I can use, but that's kind of that's kind of cool too. And again, dude, there was so much deer sign there. Oh, it was ridiculous. I, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit, but we can kind of keep hunting Georgia. Um, so, anyways, y'all been seeing deer in these cuts that are from 2011. Um, any other patterns that y'all are kind of finding so far, dude? We've been me and Michael have been brainstorming and just constantly texting back and forth about what we think the deer are moving on right now, just cause it's something that we'll probably never really be able to figure out like what gets deer to move, but it's still just like fascinating to think about it because I hunted the other morning and I didn't see anything like at all. Didn't hear anything. It was just dead as dead gets. And then I leave and I'm on my way out and it's like 10:30 in the morning. And I saw two different groups of does crossing the road in two different areas and I'm like thinking about that and I'm thinking about the deer on on this parcel and I'm like, you know, it's kind of remarkable that it was dead all morning. Like, I feel like where I was, I should have seen or at least heard something. 
uh, and I didn't. And then on the way out, here's these separate groups of does moving at the exact same time. And I'm just like, what is it that that triggers them to get up and start moving? Because, you know, a, a deer is not a robot. It doesn't follow some kind of script, like, for per weather conditions or whatever. Like, they each have their own personalities and can go do whatever they want to do, you know, like... Like if it's hungry, it's probably gonna go get up and eat, or if it's lazy, it's gonna you know lay there and I don't know do something else. But the fact that different deer are moving at the same time in different areas, like there's just something that is that's like influencing them to do that. And I don't know what it is, but we're we're just like talking about it just because it's entertaining, I guess. I mean, I don't know. Um, but it definitely seems like they're sticking close to that cover and they're taking advantage of whatever acorns are very close to that cover. Um, we found a few white oaks that are dropping, but, I mean, the vast majority of the acorns on the ground right now are red oak and water oak. Uh, that's pretty much all we've been finding. Um, and yeah. other, than, other than that, I don't know what else they're eating. Uh, I found a few persimmon trees, but none with really many persimmons on them at all, so... Uh, as far as food sources, it's definitely looking like oaks right now for Georgia. Yeah, I got a question for you. It's super, super random. Uh, what do you know? What, what does a blackjack oak uh, leaf look like? Do you remember? Or do you know? Um, that's hard for me to remember right off the top of my head. But if I remember right, it's gonna have like three lobes out front. It's not gonna have like big deep lobes down the side like a white oak does. Uh, it'll mm-hmm. look more like. This, I guess the scientific term would be like spatulate, where it's kind of like, kind of looks more like a spatula than like a, like a white oak leaf, if that makes sense. Uh, and also it's going to have little, um, little, uh, what do you call them? It's going to have like little points on the end of the lobes, uh, cause it's a red oak species. So the, like where you look at the end of the lobe on the leaf, there's going to be like a little prick coming off of it, like a little spike. Uh, it's going to be pointed rather than rounded off like a white oak. Gotcha. I found I found one oak uh, actually on the access I went in through today, and I had never noticed that tree there. I mean, it's literally right on the right on the, the trail you walk in on, and uh, it's just right on the edge of the pines. And I was looking at it, and I was like, "Man, I can't tell what it was." But dude, it was absolutely just like raining these itty bitty little acorns. I mean, they they were like tiny little things, uh, but. You could tell that there was ton dude, there was so much turkey sun where I was today, it was ridiculous. <laughs> dude, it was like it was destroyed with turkey sun. Just I mean the whole road. I mean, you could see where they've been going through the grass and just like just, you know, bugging around and everything. Yeah. And actually I, I bumped up one hen. But uh you could tell they were underneath this oak tree just eating these little acorns. And um and there was some deer sign there too, but I was just kinda curious. You know, super, super dark tree, kinda looked different from anything else i've seen before and i can't recall what the leaves look like but for some reason i feel like they were more like slightly more oval shaped than anything um but I'm, i might be misrecalling that so i'll have to check it out again yeah interesting yeah you need to you need to uh take a picture of it next time and for anybody out there listening if you find a tree and you're like unsure of what the species is and you really want to know you what you need to do is you need to get out your phone and you need to make sure you take like clear pictures that are very direct, don't not like a blurry side picture. And I'd say take at least like five to ten pictures of different parts of this tree. Specific things you're gonna want to take pictures of is gonna be, of course, the leaf, and then you're gonna want to take pictures of the branching structure. 
So where the where the um like where you have branches coming out and then you have like branches coming off of those branches, you want to take a picture of that because uh that can help you identify it based off of um whether or not the branching is alternate. So it's like you have one here and then you go up a few inches and then there's one there versus opposite where it's like uh like you go up and there's two branches coming out on either side of the stem at the same part, if that makes sense. So like you have your main branch and then you have two stems coming off the side directly across from each other. That's called opposite. And then when they're staggered, it's alternate. Uh, and that goes a long way in helping you identify different kinds of things. And then if it's an oak, uh, take a picture of the acorn. And then la the last thing you need to look at is bark. Um, bark should never be the first thing you use to identify a tree because you'll get it wrong a lot. Um, so bark should just be one of those things where like maybe you can use it to kind of confirm something or once you like really start getting good at identifying trees, there's a few that you can look at pretty reliably and tell right off the bat what it is. Like, like once you get to know what a white oak really looks like, you can look at a white oak and be like, yeah, it's a white oak without having to like stare up in the canopy trying to catch a glimpse of a leaf or something like that. Uh, but yeah, next time you go in there and you need to take pictures of that if, if I don't go in there with you sometime soon. Gotcha. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, we got to jump into uh, talking about this sketchy water axis because that video was whole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so Michael brought down an inflatable raft and there is this, this island near where we're hunting and we're like, man, I bet there's some stuff on that island that looks pretty good because uh, I had seen it before, like just from uh, walking down there and looking across the water at it. I'm like, man, looks like there's some oaks over there. It looks pretty thick. And I, I mean, there's tracks crossing the channel going to it where like the deer are clearly swimming across this island. So finally, we just decided to go over there and, and just check it out. So <laughs> so we we launched this inflatable raft and it's all fine and dandy. We get over there and it's good. And there's like a big sandy beach on the other side. And we hit that beach and we dragged the inflatable raft up like 10 feet from the freaking water. And uh, we stick the paddles in the ground and we get our stuff ready and we go hunt. And uh, we saw some stuff on the island, but it wasn't anything spectacular. It wasn't necessarily what we wanted to see. So we're walking out in the dark, just talking, not being real quiet because we're probably not going to go back to it. And... I'm like, hey, Michael, instead of walking down the shore again, because there's all kind of fallen logs and stuff down there, which we were just trying to be quiet because it was nice and quiet walking on that sand. But I was like, well, we're not trying to be quiet or anything. Let's just walk down the middle of the island through this more open timber and then duck down to where the boat is. And he's like, okay. So we're walking, and it's after dark. My headlamp dies, and so we're just using Michael's light. And then we're like, okay, I think we need to cut in right here. <laughs> and we we walk up to the water, and there's no beach. It's underwater now. We're like, oh, my God. Uh, and I was like, Michael, that water rose like 10 feet, dude. Or not really 10. It came 10 feet up the shore. It probably rose like a foot or two or whatever, uh, like vertical feet. And so I was like, dude, our boat might be gone. So we get a little sketched out, and we start kind of hurrying down to where the boat is. And, you know, I said we had stuck our paddles in the mud, like standing straight up. So we're walking. And I pop out of the trees and look down the shore, and I turn the light on. He's got, like, a like a really bright uh, handheld flashlight. And I turn it on, and, like, 50 yards down there, I just see these two paddles underwater. <laughs> like, the handles are, like, sticking up out of the water. Uh, so they're, like, they, <laughs> there's probably, where they were on completely dry ground before, there's probably, like, 
six inches of water on them now or something like that. And the boat is not there. So I was like, Michael, the boat's gone. (laughs) (laughs) We run down there and we're like, what are we going to do? And then uh, we get the light and we start looking down because, like, there's so many trees. I'm like, surely this boat has gotten caught on, like, a limb or something. And sure enough, just down the shoreline a little bit, there's the boat hung up on a, a big log jam. And I had to go down there and get it. And then we – so we get the boat and we're like, oh, thank God. Okay. And then we, we start looking at the water and we're like, dang, that water's moving a lot faster than it was. So, uh, kids, do your homework um, when you're crossing a river that is dam-controlled. Uh, note to self. So we're like, okay, this water's moving fast. I don't have a headlamp because it died. Uh, Michael has a handheld flashlight, which we can't use because we got a paddle. So it's like we look across, and it's like 60 yards or so that we have to cross. And we look across there, and we're like, okay, we're going to aim for that thing. And we just have to cut off the light and go in the complete darkness. <laughs> and so, dude, we just start digging, man. We're like paddling as hard as we can go. And it's like, I would be paddling harder than Michael, and we would start spinning one way, and then he would start paddling harder than me, and we'd start spinning the other way. And we're basically just spinning in circles across this channel over and over again. And then we get to the other side and hit this tree, and we're sitting there like pinned against this tree, and we're like, yes, we made it. And then we look, we we flip the light on, and the bank is like, it's like a cut bank. It's just mud. And so we had to like grab these vines and pull the boat upstream to get to this muddy part where I just had to, like, basically take my arm and thrust it down into the mud to, like, anchor us there. And then I had to crawl out and everything, man. It was it was sketchy, but it was really fun. It's, like, one of those things. I, I kind of, like, live for those kind of adventures where you kind of get yourself into trouble, but it's fun. But, yeah, that, that was our sketchy water access. Yeah, almost like a Tennessee 2.0. Oh, uh, yeah, no. The Tennessee was worse for sure. If y'all want to hear the story of the Tennessee one, it's on some podcast back from last fall. I don't remember, but Jacob almost killed us. Or really, I almost killed us too because we shouldn't have even been on that river to begin with. But yeah, yeah, we. I feel like every time we try to access through water, things get really weird, and it like we end up almost dying or something. Yeah, I was gonna say y'all probably didn't have life jackets, if I had to guess. No, no, and we had, like, our bows and saddles and platforms and climbing systems all in the boat, so if we had turned that baby over, we would have lost uh, quite a bit of uh, money, like, in just gear, so that would have sucked. Mm. Yeah. Well, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, too bad Too bad Michael couldn't join us for this, because I'd love to hear about his hunt today. Uh, yeah. Sounds like he pretty good bucks yeah so me and michael have both been eyeballing this one area and again like i said we're kind of trying to key in on on these uh like 2011 pines or just thick cover in general and we've we've crossed a few spots off the map so far um it's kind of been like i said just that game of eliminating spots here and there like the island because that island's been a big question mark for a year now and so finally we went over there and decided that it's really not that island is pretty much entirely privet. It was terrible. Uh and not the like what you would like in privet. It's like the privet is like mature and big and it is like a wasteland. You can see fifty yards through it. There's nothing growing under there. It was not good. Um, so we had this one spot and it's basically it's one of these twenty eleven cutovers, and like I said, this is uh this is kind of how we've been going about narrowing down this stuff. 
we start seeing deer in these 2011 cutovers. So then we, we get on there and you can get on Google Earth and uh, you can go and find out when things were cut. Or I don't know how many Georgia WMAs do this, but this particular WMA has like a land cover map and it'll tell you uh, basically what's what. So it like points out like, hey, this is a SMZ. These are thin pines. Uh, this is this was a cutover planted in this year. So, I mean, they have it all laid out there for you. Georgia freaking rocks uh, for that. So we identified this area. It's kind of, I wouldn't say it's hard access, but it's not the, it's not the closest thing to the road. Uh, and it's kind of high up on a ridge, and there's kind of a flat top ridge up there. Uh, and the, the top of the ridge is cut, like always, as most of the places down here. And then the, the slopes are kind of gentle coming out of it, and it seems like there's going to be white oaks and stuff up there just from what it looks like on the map. And there's a saddle running through it, so I'm like, man, that's got to be a good area. Well, Michael was looking at the same thing, and that's where he went today. And he got in really early. Like, I think he kind of still hunted his way in there midday and sat it for a long time. I don't know exactly how long it was, but it was a long time. And at like 2.30, he said he had two huge bucks come by him. Uh, just out of bow range, they kind of skirted him on the other side of the ridge. So that was really exciting. And then he ended up seeing, uh, I want to say like four or five more deer popping out of those pines or in that general area of the pines and walking over to where those bucks walked. So we kind of suspect there might be some kind of feed tree or something over there. Uh, but it seems like it's definitely a hot spot. And it's, I, I thought it was interesting that he saw two buck, two big bucks together. Uh, but I'm interested to hear more about it. I wish he could have been here uh, to record with us, but I'm sure that we'll hear all about it probably next week or something. Um, but Michael's got until, if he if he's able to keep hunting, he's going to have till Tuesday. And then I'll be able to get back out on Tuesday and Thursday probably. So I'm probably going to sneak up in there and, and check out the other side of uh, other side of the saddle where it looks like there's some more hardwoods and just see what it looks like. Um, maybe find a persimmon or something up there. Uh, one thing I was telling Michael that is pretty interesting is on on a lot of these places in the south, like, I don't know, I don't know what you'd call it, but like central Alabama and kind of central Georgia, I guess, where logging is like your big industry, like there's no agriculture, it's basically just planted pines. It can be kind of hard to find persimmons just because, like, I don't, I don't know, like the actual, uh, like, I don't know what you'd call it, the, I don't, I don't know, like the, the details about persimmon trees and all that about where they like to grow but i typically find them higher up on slopes i don't usually find them i mean i'll find them in bottoms sometimes but the majority of the time they're on slopes or on uh, ridge tops well a lot of our slopes and ridge tops are cut and they're pines now so if i'm one if i'm going out with the purpose of finding a persimmon tree in a place like this uh where i want i'm going and I'm, my whole goal is to find like a hot persimmon tree I'm going to look and try and find some what you'd call like upland hardwoods, stuff that is not within an SMZ, so it's basically not in a creek bottom uh, that hasn't been cut. So like hardwoods up on top of a ridge or something or on the side of a ridge that's not close to a to a flowing creek or anything like that, those are usually good places to find persimmons. And this place definitely looks like it fits the bill. So if it hadn't been logged in a really long time and it's kind of your natural like hardwood mix forest, uh, there should be some uh, some persimmons in there, so I'm kind of eager to get up there and check that out. Awesome. Well, I mean, also if you've got a really good feed tree, then you ought to be set too, especially if you've got just a really good oak dropping. 
um, mm-hmm. that, that'll be the ticket. So yeah, and that's another thing. This higher elevation stuff, which you know, it's not—it's like maybe twenty to thirty feet higher than a lot of the other stuff. I mean, it's not that much higher at all. But that's where we're finding the red or the white oaks is in spots like that. So I mean, if there's some white oaks up there that are starting to drop, they're probably about the first ones that are dropping in the area. So they might be really, really hot. Awesome. Well, speaking about featureies, uh, actually met up with Adrian Farley. Uh, I guess it was on Saturday. And uh, actually went hog hunting with him. And, dude, he is a freaking blast to be with, dude. And you talk about this uh, this so much knowledge. We're going to have to do another, um, like, in-person podcast with him. Because, dude, we, we sat in his truck, and he's very much, like, old-school paper maps. Even though he's still – he's, like, hunt staying and everything. But, uh, dude, he shows me – he showed me how he breaks down his paper maps, dude. And it is, like, ridiculous. And I'm like – and he's like, all right. Dude, he does so much scouting from the house either like on the phone or on on the maps before he even gets boots on the ground. He's like, I'm just, when I go boots on the ground, I'm just confirming what I saw on the map. And he's like, then he's like, then I'm good. Yeah. That's pretty sweet, dude. Okay. What, what's some stuff that he's looking for? I mean, were you able to gather that from the time you spent with him? Yeah. Well, I mean, he's just looking for just natural corridors and, and just travel areas, you know, around roads or anything like that where, you know, deer would be slipping through. And he actually took me to some of these areas that he had marked, and we drove around, and I saw, like, how much different the vegetation was. And he's like, his whole thing is it's like the find on the map, go there, get on the ground, either drive through or get out and sometimes walk it. But a lot of times he just likes to drive through on the roads and to see what it looks like. And he's like, he's looking for a certain type of thickness. And, like, dude, what he's looking for is, like, even I was like, dang, dude, like, that's, <laughs> like, that's like hardcore, man. Like, it's really? way thicker than the crap I thought I was going in last year. Oh, really? Um, oh, my God. Dude, like, I'm, like, straight-up machete, like, kind of thickness. Um, and he was like, he's like, no joke, when you go in these areas, you know, even in, like, November, it'll be, still be that thick. And he's like, it's hard to be quiet going in there. That's why he doesn't like going in, like, in the dark, you know, or he'll go in, like, at gray light and ease his way in. He's like, dude, when you get a shot – they like you don't know they're there until that deer is literally like ten yards from you in a shooting lane that might be the size of a basketball or it might be the size of you know it might be you know ten feet wide. Yeah. And uh, anyways, and I was like, "Geez, dude, it's crazy. It's it's legit crazy, man. I ain't gonna lie." Dude, but uh, did you take a picture of one of the thickets? No, no. Dang it, uh, man. But he he was very much. I very much understand why like. A climber in areas like this, either a climber or you're gonna have to use climbing spikes, dude, because you got to get up high. And dude, I don't want to be like the 20 feet ain't cutting it, like at all. 20 feet is not cutting it. Yeah. So everybody's like, oh, I, I get 20 feet with my, my sticks. Well, you ain't gonna see crap. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's just the case, dude. So I mean, you gotta get no joke, dude. You gotta get 25, 30, 35 feet up. Um, which isn't a great shot angle by no means, but dude, that's what you're gonna have to do to get in these areas and be able to see down into them. Um, but we found a, so we actually went hunting. So we drove around. He showed me a couple areas that like he's had a lot of success with. I mean, dude, I'm talking just barely far enough off the road to be legal. I ain't gonna lie in some of these areas, yeah. but he's finding them where they're cutting across roads, and guys are either either going past it. 
or they're just not hunting it because it doesn't look great from the road. And some of them didn't look great from the road. And, uh, anyways, but we finally get to where we went hog hunting, dude, we got out and, uh, start packing our gear up and everything and start hiking out. He's like, yeah, he's like, where we're going to be going. Um, or he's like, where we're going to be going, you know, we're not going to be super far off the road. You know, we only have to walk like 130 yards or whatever. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And we get out there, dude. And it goes from like tall grass it was like a little finger ridge, like coming off like the main road. And it, it went from being like, you know, we're going through like waist high grass, chest high grass to literally like underneath these oaks. And they are just absolutely, it, it's destroyed, dude. I was like, this is a legit feed tree, which I mean, a lot of it is from the hog sign because we were hog hunting. Um, but dude, there was deer sign there too. And it was just destroyed. Yeah, that I'm, was pretty crazy. That was on our Instagram story. For anybody who was interested in that, you should have been following us on Instagram if you didn't see it. But, uh, dude, yeah, it's literally dirt under these trees. Like, and the thing is, you go, in, you go, you know, fifty yards from there, you know, back the way we came in, it's grass under like some of the same trees. But there's certain trees that were dropping that these pigs absolutely were all over, dude. I mean, it was just ridiculous, and. uh Anyway, so we, we found our tree, we got up in it, and um, I was kind of like running cameraman, like on backup with the bow. So Adrian climbed this, climbed up this, this red oak. I got up on the backside of him uh, with, with a saddle and just sat there and filmed and everything. It was a good afternoon, but didn't see any, no hogs came in, no deer came in, but we had a coyote slip up behind us, and uh, he was a touch out of range. And then he, he I guess he might, I guess he saw me turn around and uh, he turned in and skedaddled out there. But, I mean, the feed sign was ridiculous, man. The hogs had worn down. I, look, no joke, dude. If you would have saw this, you're like, dude, this is like straight up a hiking trail. Hiking trails on this ridge, dude. Mm-hmm. Where, I mean, they hook out the grass, worn down dirt path that went all the way down this ridge, dude. And there was like three of them paralleling each other. Dang. So, Holy crap. Yeah. It was, it, it was ridiculous. Um. But anyway, so, you know, we got down, we got down at dark and, and got back to the truck and drove out and we went to go grab one of his cameras and check one of his cameras where he's been finding, uh, or he's been trying to find this, this really big deer, uh, that he had on camera like a year ago, check it, nothing on the camera, we're in the camera back out, we start driving out and on the way in, we saw this really big crossing on the road, uh, that he had seen like a doe cross on like the week before. We came back out. He's like, man, I got that camera. He's like, why don't we find that crossing again and go hang that camera on that crossing and see what it looks like. And uh, we found it, went out, and, dude, got up on this embankment and went up there. And, dude, it's a worn-out crossing. It was, dude, it was one of the sweetest spots I've ever seen where these, these uh, you know, deer were coming out of super mature pines, dude. Like, pines that were, like, kind of, oh, they were openings as in, like, there was, like, no vegetation over, like, your head in a lot of these places but like when you got down on the deer level it was like super thick and they had a worn out tree right there so we hung a camera and tested and, and skedaddled out of there but uh it was it was a it was a freaking good time adrian is straight up a woodsman like this dude is ridiculous like again we're gonna have to have him back on i'd love to do a video with him of like how he breaks down like properties like that because dude it is like no it he, there's there's no bs with it dude he knows exactly what he's looking for 
he breaks it down, goes out there, and finds what he wants and goes and kills deer. It's ridiculous. Oh, man. Yeah, I'd love to do a video on that. Uh, and we've gotten a lot of people actually lately email or message us about uh, getting some pictures of like what people are talking about when they're talking about their spots, whether it's like the kind of thickets, like what you're talking about with Adrian uh, that he was looking at, or you know whatever else we're talking about with people. Um, it'd be helpful to like get some pictures and post them up. So we're gonna work on doing that. Maybe do some videos on it too, um, and try and try and like get a visual out there of what these thickets look like. Because it sounds like Jacob, even you were like caught off guard by how thick it was. Uh, what Adrian dude, was talking about. It was ridiculous. Like it was like the kind of I'm like, dude, I'm not going. I I told him I'm like, that's where you go. He's like, that's. He's like, yeah, like that's like what I look for. I'm like, Jesus Christ, no wonder no one else, no wonder you never run into anybody else because, dude, like, you'd either have to be, like, stupid and get lost in one of those areas to, like, hunt there, or you just have to be, like, someone like Adrian that just learned that himself to go into that because, dude, that was not the first thing that came to my mind when we drove by some of those spots. I was like, no, sir, man. <laughs> it's, just, it's just rugged, dude. It's just, it's just rugged. And, I mean, it's like wall of vegetation from like your ankles to like, above your head like eight feet up okay i mean there's a wall of vegetation and there's no other way to explain it just greenness just i mean this you're walking there you're like there's gonna be a snake falling on you i guarantee falling on you oh yeah early. <laughs> oh yeah Holy right God. across right across the shoulders Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, dang. I, I want to see what this looks like now because I feel like now even what I'm thinking about is, like, not as thick as, nope. as what it should I be. Guarantee it, dude. Like, where you and me have hunted, I don't know any spots that really look like this at all. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So what, what, that, what that translates to to me is, like, just the thickest stuff that you can find on your place. I mean – we might, not, we might not have, like, the kind of thick that he has, but, I mean, the thickest stuff that we have, you know, that's the best that the deer have available to him, right? Yeah. So, so, it's like it would make sense to to go into something like that. Man, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, so the, short, the pines I went to today, which are probably, I don't know, they might be 15, 20 years old, they were not thick enough, dude, like, compared to the stuff he was, like, you could walk through it way too easy. I mean, it was thick. We're like, as in, like, you're not getting a shot past, like, 25, 30 yards with a bow. Um, but it's not even close to how, like, his thickness, like, right now, early season, like, right now, someone could be 10 feet from you on the ground, and you're on the ground, and you're not going to see them. Holy crap, man. That's crazy. That's crazy. But the deer have, like, tunnels. And we saw some of the trails going through it. Deer have, like, tunnels going through that stuff. I mean, it's straight up, like, when guys... Like Adrian, like you find them where you hunt rabbits, straight up send the beagles in there because that's where those freaking deer are, dude. I mean, yeah, it, it's it's crazy, dude. That, doesn't that just make you think though, like the amount of thickets like similar to that out there and how how little attention they get? You know, it's like I talk to people about that kind of stuff all the time. Where growing up, you know, driving around. We would drive past like a like a cutover or something that was just like super super thick, and all the like older men I was always hunting with when I was a kid, they're all like, "Yep, deer can get old and that stuff because you can't hunt them." Uh, man, do you just ever wonder with like the amount of that type of vegetation there is just throughout the South, like what kind of just giant bucks 
could be like lurking in that stuff that just no one no one ever really gets at them. They just kind of hang out and kind of fly actually, under the radar. Yeah, actually, now I think about it, I, I know two spots now that are very similar to that that we've been to before. Oh, all right. Well, we're like, going to have to. Were you ran to the buck you filmed on the ground? Stuff in that area would be very similar. Ah, okay. That's what I was. That's kind of what I was thinking about when you uh, when you brought it up. I was like, "Hey, that kind of that kind of rings a bell." Because I remember we started to walk down into that stuff, and we were like, "Wow, we literally can't get into here." So, yeah. But we. But it's it, it is huntable though. We can't get above it and hunt it, so that's exciting. Yeah, like that's it's still from what we saw there. It's still a different type of thickness from like what I saw with him, but that would be very comparable, somewhat for sure uh as in just like the level of thickness and how much cover there is in there because it's like dude again you get 10 i could get 10 15 feet from you in that crap and just like disappear in it interesting well dude i'm i'm extremely eager to like start oh putting this stuff what well another thing so adrian and i guess i i don't think we ever talked about betting with him i've talked to him on the phone a ton dude and I was asking him more and more because he never goes out and specifically has been looking for deer beds ever. Like that's just not his thing. He's trying to find major corridors where these deer are coming through, and then trying to find where the bucks are trying to cross doe trails, especially coming you know pre rut and then during the rut. Yeah. Um, but he he was exp- I asked him. I was like, while we were out there driving, I'm like, you know, he kept telling me that when he does find beds and has seen bucks bed down. They're always in a spot where they can see either access, like see a road, or they see where people are parking or where you're walking in from, or they're in an area where they can see just stuff in front of them and they have a wall of vegetation behind them. Like he's like, they're always in an area where they can see. Like hands down, every time he sees them where, where he's seen a buck bed, like a, a, a bigger buck, it's in an area like that. And he says that every time he's seen one while he's in the tree stand, he can't get a shot, but he sees it bed down. It comes, it does a J-hook, and he, that's word for word where he says. He's like, it, it'll come in with, like, the wind, like, coming, like, across his um, – or no, hold on. Wind is, like, in his face or quartering in its face when he's walking in. He will swing around, and it's normally upper, like, higher up on a ridge, swing around and put his back to the wind, facing downwind, the wind coming over his back, and that's how he sets up with a wall of vegetation behind him. And he's gonna see either down to a bottom, down to a parking lot, down to a road, something like that. And he's like, it's they're super hard to kill. But he's like, he's seen that in person before. I'm like, dude, that's pretty freaking legit. That's interesting. Which that that brings to mind. Have you watched that new hunting beast video where uh that dude shoots the buck in the bed? Uh no. Oh, Joe's yeah, I haven't seen Joe's deer. Yeah, I've watched that today. It's pretty it's pretty crazy. You need to go watch it. Um he breaks down like how this buck beds and everything, and like his thoughts behind it. He basically did a bump and dump, um, and he, dude, the footage is crazy. He he literally gets up there like hours before daylight, gets way up in this tree, and this buck comes in and beds like twenty yards behind him, and he had to let it get light enough for uh, him to shoot it, and he shot that thing laying in its bed. It was it was pretty crazy, man. It was a crazy video, um, but I'd like to. I'd like to get Adrian on the podcast to actually talk about that because I feel like there's a lot of meat to that subject right there, uh, just about the whole the the betting thing. Um, I'll tell you what, man, I would really like to get Michael Pike and Adrian like in a room together and just let them bounce stuff off each other because I mean, we've had Michael on before, 
and and y'all have seen Michael in videos at some point, whether it was on our videos or some of his videos. And I mean, it, you know, Michael knows his stuff, but until you really spend time with him and like break down a property with him, like he stayed with me for like four or five days last week, and now he's been staying down here again uh, this week for until his license runs out. And just like the amount that that dude just breaks down stuff just like fascinates me. Everything that happens, he's like analyzing it and breaking it down. And I mean, dude, my Michael Michael Pike knows his stuff about deer. Like he's a much better deer hunter than than meets the eye. I mean, he's been kicking my butt. I've been going out there and like I've been seeing does here and there. But dude, every time he goes out, he's on all kinds of deer. So Michael Michael's definitely a skilled skilled deer hunter i'd love to get him on and have him like help us host another podcast with someone like adrian uh and just let it roll and see what see where it goes i think mm-hmm. i think we'd get a lot of good info out of it yeah oh yeah for sure for sure um but yeah dude so that, that was the something i learned from him for sure was just like the access or not the access, but just like how hard it is to access on this like real thick cover, dude. But then I, I totally understand like why you don't have to get so far from the road because a lot of this cover is along the roads, especially like when they do logging. And the deer can feel very comfortable crossing a lot of these roads and just bedding up or just, you know, using these this thick cover along the roads just to access different areas and just work their way through it. So. I, I totally now understand why he like explained on the podcast we had him on. Like he struggles sometimes to get far enough off the road to stay legal and kill those deer legally where they're far enough off the road, just because of how close they'll sit to those roads. Yeah, that's interesting, man. That is that's interesting. Yeah, anywhere you have logging, you're gonna have a really good road system typically. Whether you know, not all the roads might be open. But, uh, I mean, you're going to have logging trails. You're going to have roads that connect them because, I mean, they got to get the timber out, you know, with with big trucks and skidders and everything. So, I mean, there, there's got to be good roads. Um, de- now, uh, I need to ask you something before I forget it, um, and we'll wrap this thing up here pretty quick. But when you when Adrian is talking about, and I know we're getting this secondhand. Like I said, we'll have to get him back on, but I'm just too curious. i got to ask it now. When Adrian talks about travel corridors going between areas, is he looking for terrain features or is he looking for like connectivity between thickets? Like where this thicket, you know, kind of swoops down and touches a road and then right on the other side of the road, there's another thicket and he's looking for like where these thickets kind of link up and connect. Yeah. So first strictly just based off, uh, uh, topographical maps. That's it. I mean, that's like the first thing he looks for and what he looks for is trying to find a saddle that connects two large drainages together um, that he thinks those deer are going to be working through. Cause he, he truly believes in all these areas, all of these big deer, just deer in general will live in a lot of these really big drainages. And the easiest way for them to go to drainage to drainage is to cut through these saddles. And then he goes and checks these saddles out. And sometimes the saddles is on, like the road is on the saddle. Um, and uh, anyways, but then he correlates it with how thick it is. Because if it's, if it's wide open, then he won't necessarily pay attention to it. But if it's got the right kind of thickness that he's looking for, then he's like, okay, this is a spot I'll definitely come and hunt. Uh, and the thing is, he doesn't even have to. This is one thing that was very fascinating that he told me. He's like, he doesn't even have to go in there and see if there's deer sign. Like, he doesn't even care. Like, there could be no deer sign there now. And he's like, it doesn't bother him because he knows come November, there's going to be deer in that area. It's just, There's just going to be deer there. 
And uh, one cool thing he told me was no matter where he hunts on, like, the property that he hunts on, everything's always the same. They don't really change a whole bunch. And he can find the exact same stuff that he hunts, like, where we were. You know, he can find the exact same stuff 20 miles from there and be able to kill deer in the exact same kind of stuff, exact same conditions, but 20 miles from there. And he can never be there, uh, you know, first time in and be able to kill a deer. It, it's crazy because he looks for the exact same stuff no matter where he's at and where he finds that kind of vegetation and cover and terrain features, there's deer there. Yeah. So so he's looking at, like, natural, like, terrain features first, and then he's trying to kind of ground check it with the right kind of thickness. Yes, correct. Gotcha, okay. Just making sure. That's all he cares about. He, he doesn't care about if there's rubs, scrapes, tra- like, ton of trails. He doesn't care about any of that because he knows if he can find the right topographical features, which mostly saddles, and then the right kind of thickness that he's going to find deer there. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, dude, we're going to have to have him back on. I wish that I could have come up there and hog hunted with y'all. That would have been a lot of fun. But uh, maybe we'll make something happen here pretty soon, especially since Bama's about to come in here in about, oh, 16 days on the day this drops. Uh, maybe we'll get up there and hunt with him. That'd be a lot of fun. All right, dude, you got anything else? Uh, if not, we can wrap this bad boy up. Nope, good, good to go. Just super excited. Uh, again, Alabama deer season is getting so much closer. And then this weekend, uh, I believe, as long as everything works out, I should be going to Tennessee this weekend, hopefully to hunt some cut corn. So I am freaking pumped. Sweet, man, cool. Yeah, and uh, I, I got the fluid head, by the way. So uh, if ever, if anybody's been wondering about why there's no YouTube videos, it's because I haven't been able to film anything because <laughs> Jacob took my fluid head when he left opening weekend of Georgia. So I just got to – do what? <laughs> Excuses. Furry hand, bro. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll just hold it like with my pinky on my bow arm. <laughs> Have that action yeah. action cam look. Zip ties, bro. Come on now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's what Adrian does. Um, yeah. We're, so now I got that thing. So I'm gonna be filming. So hopefully, man, maybe Tuesday. We're gonna have record high temperatures on Tuesday. So that's gonna suck, but. Uh, I'm free that day, so I think I'm going to go hunt anyways, like like Greg would do. Go use that heat to my advantage. Maybe set it up on a water hole or something. We'll see. But uh, anyways, uh, thanks. Oh! For, what, what? What? Oh, that's the one thing I was going to hit on. Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, before we wrap this, I got to hit on this. Okay, so when I went out today <laughs> to go scout, dude, yeah. I have never in like the six years I've hunted this place, there is one spot I drive through and one area you know, I've hunted and you and me have hunted where you have to cross like a little bit of water. Mm-hmm. I have never, ever, ever seen one of the holes you got to drive through dry. I've never seen it. And dude, dry as a freaking bone, dude. Oh, really? Water, like right now, water in Central Alabama, if we don't get any rain before season gets here, I'm about to go out and scout a couple couple creek bottoms for sure uh, this coming week and, and to see what kind of signs come to them. Because, dude, where I did find water, there was a ton of deer signs, like just tracks, dude. Yeah, well, I mean so, that's a that's how I killed my first bow deer. Um, like that, the year that I killed my first deer with a bow, it was a really bad drought, and I literally sat up on a water hole in like a creek. All the creeks were dry in our area, like all of them, and even even the ones the, the bigger ones, it, all of them were dry. But I was able to go down, and I did what you're talking about. I scouted out some little creek bottoms. And there'll be like a little switch back in the creek where there's like a high bank and there's a low spot that like stays in the shade, and it it had water in it, 
And that's where I killed my very first bow deer, like opening week of bow season. It was that exact scenario, and I killed a doe right at daylight going to that water hole. So, yeah. dude, that can be well, su- that can be super, super effective. Like, I'm, the drought's not good and everything, obviously. We don't – it's not good to be in a drought. But, I mean, you can seriously use it to your advantage. If you're, if you're experiencing actual water scarcity, that can be a serious advantage uh, that we don't get to take care of – take advantage of ever because we got so much water around here, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, um, I'm not saying I'm excited for us not to get rain, but I am excited possibly about the opportunity to be able to hunt some water because I found some place that has water and I've already got a little bit of history in those areas, uh, with, you know, finding deer and find some good deer too. So, uh, I, I've got to get in there hopefully, uh, Monday after work, slip in there and just see what I can find. But yeah, that's just something I, I realized today when I was driving around, I was like, dude, I have never, ever, ever seen this one spot that you got to drive through. I've never seen it dry, ever. Like, dude, never, ever. I mean, literally in six years, and it is it is ridiculously dry. So I was like, oh, man, this is this is going to change a couple things. So, yeah, yeah. anyway. We'll see. We'll see, man. <laughs> All right, guys. Without, uh, you got anything else, Jacob? No, just, hey, make sure, uh, you know, guys, I know we picked up a ton of new listeners in a bunch of different states uh, over the last couple weeks. If you've really been enjoying the podcast, please share it with a buddy. Uh, either just you know send them the link to the podcast or just let them know that hey you know you listen to our podcast and you really enjoy it. Uh, we do appreciate that. And also, we're gonna be getting some new merchandise. We're gonna get some actual. We've never done merchandise ever. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're gonna be getting some uh, some leather patch hats coming in, guys, uh, this coming week. So uh, stay tuned for that. And uh, I was thinking about maybe us just getting a list of people like just people that are interested in buying one. Not not do a pre order, but just like. I almost have a list of like people to call or whatever once we get them in. Um, but anyways, might try to do that, might not. Who knows? But just stay tuned for that. Just make sure you also you like and subscribe to the Facebook page, Instagram, and YouTube at the Southern Outdoorsman. And that's all I got, man. Yeah, sweet. Yeah, y'all be on the lookout for those hats. They're pretty sweet. Uh, we got a really good response from them on our social media platform. So y'all be watching our Instagram and our Facebook and everything. We'll see when we can. Uh, make those available for sale hopefully within the next two weeks uh and we appreciate the support guys uh share us with a buddy leave us a review You guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we've went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to, to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you, whatever the case maybe and like i said we get a lot of questions on how do you find you know a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections the mobile hunters expo is the place to do that y'all heard us talk about it last year and guess what this year it's happening in dalton georgia we're gonna be there june 28th through the 30th we're gonna be there all three days we're gonna have a booth you can come talk to us we talked to a lot of you guys last year had a ton of fun so looking forward to that again but guys i'm telling you this is the place to come network and there's gonna be a ton of you guys there a lot of southern outdoorsman podcast listeners 
listeners are going to be at this show. And actually, Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after-hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people, and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now, we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.